in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and I could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, welcome. Happy Halloween weekend. Welcome to episode number 119 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, October the 30th, 2021. My name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank last Saturday's guests. We had Adam Gray and Eric Myers joining us. And I want to also let you all know that tomorrow night on Collectible Live, my guest will be Buster Share, founder of Hoops Nation. We go live on the Collectible YouTube channel tomorrow at 5 p.m., sorry, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Next Saturday on Sports Cards Live, I'll be joined by Dale Novikowski, Amit Acharya, and Steve Menzi. We are going to be talking about the upcoming Expo and the Vancouver show the week after. Those are the uh, Dale promotes the Vancouver show. Steve promotes the Toronto Expo. And Amit is my regular co-host for pre-Expo uh, previews. All right. I want to shout out my friends at the Big Three Hockey. Check them out on Instagram. These guys showcase great singles on the platform. I also want to, of course, again, shout out the Sport Card Expo in Toronto, November 11th to 14th. I'm going to be there. I hope you're there. Can't wait to see you all there. Come say hello. It's going to be a blast. And then the weekend after, November 19th to 21st, is the Vancouver Area Card Show. Both of those dates and websites are on the ticker right now. Check them out and come out if you can. I want to thank channel supporter Whatnot, One Minute Auctions, Buy It Now Shows, hosted around the clock by some of the best breakers in the hobby. They also have other collectibles, Pokemon, Funkos, MetaZoo, comics, and more. And I want to shout out all of you podcast listeners. And you know I appreciate you. You are uh, you, you come in big numbers. So thank you very much. And everyone who has already subscribed to Sports Cards Live, I thank you. Uh, if you are not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Really appreciate that. As always, everybody, tonight, your comments, your questions are in play. So let's get to tonight's guest. He sits at the helm of the card company that changed everything back in 1989. He started working at Upper Deck in 2006, became the president in 2013 upon the founder, the Richard McWilliams passing. And he is a fan of all Detroit teams, the Red Wings, the Pistons, the Tigers, and the Lions. His favorite athlete is Will Clark, originally from Muskegon, Michigan, currently hailing from San Diego, California. Let's bring him out. Jason Moshera, <laughs> welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight? Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for joining. It's my pleasure to have you, Jason. So first things first, we were just chatting before we went live and uh, you mentioned to me that your favorite athlete is Will Clark. I said, I never understood. I remember Will Clark. He was a stud back in the late 80s, early 90s. He gets no hobby love. What's up with that? You know, I haven't tried to buy any of his stuff, you know, in, in the, the recent past, but I, I tell you, there's a lot of Will Clark collectors out there. It gets pretty competitive bidding on stuff. Um, over the years. So I, I think there's a, a, a silent fan base that avidly collects. They just aren't real vocal. And of course, Clark stuff doesn't get the the headline news right on prices. So that that, uh, you know, kind of keeps him in the background a bit. Yeah, I suppose. So I mean, back in the day, he was uh, he was a, a chase card, a player that people were collecting with up there with the Griffies and the Frank Thomases and Cal Ripken Jr's. And 
now now you know crickets for what i'm seeing but it's glad it's it's nice to hear that there is a, a group of people collecting him and <laughs> you're you're among them so that, that's good stuff so okay well let's uh let's get into a little bit about yourself before we hit all the hot topics that that you know i've got a ton of questions for you i'm sure we're going to get some from the chat but um let's let's talk a bit about your history so tell yeah tell us a little bit about your hobby history how long have you been in the hobby and some of your experiences along the way yeah so you know, I, I got my first set from my godparents in 1986. It was 86 tops uh, baseball. It was a Christmas present, and that kind of got the ball rolling. Uh, from there, I, I started setting up at shows in 91. I started working in a card and comic book shop in 93. I, I started my own shop in 95 and ran that for a couple years. And, you know, I, I quickly realized at the time, like, I wasn't going to be able to run a shop full time and, and go get my, my degree at university. Uh, so I, I ended up shutting it down and, and going to school. And, you know, during that time, uh, it took a little detour off the hobby, hobby path for a while and spent a lot of time on Beckett buy, sell trade and, and flipping through SCD and, and doing transactions that way. And, um, you know, years later, uh, after, you know, spending some time in electrical distribution of all things, you know, I decided I wanted to go get my MBA uh, and get into back into sports and entertainment stuff. So I went to uh, Indiana University, got my my grad degree, and you know took every opportunity and every job that I possibly could. And I actually ended up interning for the Cincinnati Bengals. I interned for the uh, Chicago Rush Arena football team. I did a consulting gig for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, did a uh, case study on the Houston Texans and. When everything was said and done uh, at grad school, there was this brand manager position at Upper Deck. And I thought, well, I, I know trading cards and I've got a couple marketing degrees. It probably makes sense to, to take a look at this and uh, been here ever since. So how did you go about, you know, seeing that job opening to actually securing the job? Like, what was that like? Well, you know, I think like a lot of people experienced, I sent my, uh, I sent my, resume in through the job portal online probably three or four times and never heard anything. And ironically, um, when I was at the arena football team, Upper Deck was the exclusive trading card partner for the arena football league. And we had a, a like a family, I don't know what to call it, maybe a festival before every game where different vendors would set up and they would do free face painting and signs and balloons for all the kids and stuff. And I thought, why aren't there trading cards here? So I reached out to Upper Deck. I, I uh, found a guy in marketing, a guy by the name of Benjamin Wu, and said, hey, can you at least tell me who the shops are in the area? Maybe we can get them to set up at the at the pregame festival. And uh, he was the one, when the job opening came up, I said, hey, can you get my resume to whoever the hiring manager is for the position? And that was what finally got me an interview here. Uh, unfortunately, I, I couldn't get it through the online submission portal. Well, at least you got it one way or another, for, <laughs> for sure, right? For sure. Now, in our discussions earlier, you you had a card shop yourself. What were <laughs> tell tell the story about that kind of made me laugh when when you told it to me the other day. Yeah. So when I had the shop, one of the things that I I did was I applied with all the card companies at the time to become direct. So I had direct accounts with FLIR and I had direct accounts with Collector's Edge, but I actually got rejected by Upper Deck as a direct account, which is kind of funny in hindsight now. Yeah, you only have yourself to be mad at now. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Okay, before we get into some more uh, 
topics. Let's say hello to the to the audience, the crowd. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Studio Sports, Steve. I uh, appreciate that. Glad to have you, Troy. Good evening and welcome, Bobby. Baseball, great to see you. We got Frank as always. Good evening, Frank. What's up, Facebook user? Daniel A, great to see us. Skeppy says I own three cans of Pringles. Um, we'll see. We'll see about that. Daniel Busby, good evening. We have uh, there's Mike from Eastridge, Jeff Hart, good evening. Frank lets us know that the Wings lost to Toronto tonight and the Pistons beat Orlando. So you're one and one. I better mention everybody, my team, the Flames, who are who just did, went five and zero on a road trip, are playing like the puck is dropping right away. So if somebody doesn't mind keeping me posted on the score in the chat, I would uh, I would appreciate that. Uh, this Facebook user, I'm guessing this is uh, Carvin, because I know he's famous for saying "What up, what up." So if that's you, Carv, <laughs> good, good evening. We got Eric with us. Hello, Eric. Ian undercover. Jeff McMahon. Joe in the house. Good evening, Joe. Great to see you. He says, "Will the thrill." Giants favorite. Where he wants to know, Jason, were you a Giants fan? You know, I was a Tigers fan, but I was such a big Will Clark fan. I, that was like my second adopted team, and I was. Um, I was big on that team. You know, they had Robbie Thompson playing second, Kevin Mitchell, Matt Williams. I mean, it was a it was a pretty impressive team. And unfortunately, they never won a series. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair. Steve Sir says, uh, Upper Deck Collector, from the beginning, I've got every year's Upper Deck Hockey from 1991 through 2021. You could say I'm a decent customer. Yeah, that's, a, that's loyalty right there, Steve. Awesome. Steven, we got Steve Foley in the house in Florida. Good evening, Pedro, Adam, Toa. Good to see you, buddy. Terry Fortune says, interesting story from a card store owner becoming president of Upper Deck. Yeah, definitely. Definitely is. Purple Haze, how's it going? And Carvin confirms it is, in fact, Carvin. <laughs> we got Les Edwards in the house tonight. Hey, Les, great to see you. Les has some killer Upper Deck cards in his collection. I can uh, tell you that for sure. So... You know, let's let's dive right in. I'm going to start with something. I think this is going to be a fun question. I want to know what are a couple of things you're most proud of Upper Deck and a couple of things you're least proud of at Upper Deck. So start with the most proud of. Well, you know, I think for me, um, especially when I took over, Upper Deck was in a pretty rough spot. Uh, there were a lot of rumors floating around and our, our founder passed away. And, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time kind of rebuilding the, the company culture and, and getting us pointed in the right direction. And I'm, I'm really proud of, of where we're at now as a company, um, you know, from customer service and, and the job that Chris Carlin and his team do there uh, to the product development team uh, all the way through. It's it's I'm really happy with where the company's at. We got a lot of work to do still, but but I'm really happy considering where we where we once were. And so the flip side of that, is there anything that you can kind of put your finger on that you're, you know, that you'd like to see improve or that you maybe are just less proud of? <laughs> well, you know, I, I unfortunately, I'm, as the, the employees here know, like I'm never truly happy. Uh, I think we can always be better at a lot of things. Um, you know, every product I, I open, there's one or two things that, you know, I think we can improve in. Uh, the nice part is, is the team already sees it before I even um, get to it. So they're always looking to improve. Uh, our vendors have been borderline horrific over the pandemic. Um, we've had a lot of QC issues, time issues, things of that nature. Um, you know, we're spending a lot of time trying to work through all those type of vendor issues right now. So um, I, I think that's probably our biggest issue right now. You know, on that, I know I have a feeling that you know, people who watch this show regularly, they by now they should know that Upper Deck and the other card companies don't print 
their own cards. But I don't know that that's the general understanding by the greater hobby. Um, Can you just sort of speak a little bit to to how that arrangement, um, you know, really impacts your workflow? Yeah, I I think, you know, it's hard. Um, In some ways, it's really good because our team can focus on you know, the mechanics of a product, the, the rarities, the, the inserts, the, the designs, um, but we don't control the actual production. And I think what's hard during the pack out, and I'm sure other guests from, from our company and other companies have talked about it, you know, typically we do on-site pack out checks on a lot of these to make sure that they are, you know, hitting the quality standards that, that we typically do. During the pandemic, for the most part, we weren't allowed inside these factories for safety precautions. And I think what we've seen is a result of no upper deck staff being on, on hand, like we've had some issues along the way. And it, it is tough not having that direct control over the actual production. Yeah. How involved are you or have you been over the years in terms of like innovation, um, you know, new concepts? Is there is there a concept that, that's yours, that's your baby, anything like that? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I can take credit for, for quite a few things. Um, you know, I think the, the big thing was when I came to Upper Deck, I, I really felt as a collector, things had gotten pretty stagnant. Um, I didn't see a lot of card innovation. Um, I had missed the era of, you know, the jersey card, the autograph card, the cut signature cards. Um, the, the RPAs, um, kind of all that stuff got introduced. Um, so, you know, there was a period of time where there wasn't a lot of new card technology and things of that nature. And, you know, I really pushed the team to start coming up with, with new innovations and some of them work, some of them don't, you know, from the shadow box cards, we did, um, signature slot cards, we did video cards. Um, you know, we've, we've come up with a lot of different kind of technologies, um, you know, uh, Grant's bug cards, uh, and his insect cards and Goodwin came, uh, under my tenure. Um, there's just, there's a lot of, I would say innovation during that time that, you know, I've really pushed the team and, and continue to push the team to, to look for new things. Again, I think the hard part during the pandemic is it's hard to push the manufacturers for, uh, innovation when, you know, you're just kind of locked out of everything yeah what's your you know i collect lots of rare inserts and parallels and that kind of stuff that's what i love and i know what my favorites are what's your personal favorite sort of insert set that uh, has come out over the past 10 or so years oh over the last 10 or so years um or 15 you know i I, i'm unfortunately a bit of a bandwagoner um you know i would say a lot of the the fleer inserts um from the 90s are are kind of my thing the uh i I like the autographic sets from back in the day i really like the precious metal gems and the jambalayas um you know you know for me I, i i go back to a lot of the stuff i collected growing up um you know the the Pro Bowl cards out of the, the I think it's 92 Upper Deck football sets. Um, so it's a lot of that kind of stuff when I when I look back through some of the stuff that I, I really got excited about. And that's why you see kind of a um, resurgence towards some of that retro stuff. I think probably one of my, my all-time favorite sets is EX2000 uh, in that design. And I know uh, at least there's one person internally who keeps uh, lobbying to finally come out with that design in hockey at some point 
Good, good, because uh, I'm 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 trying to apply as much pressure as I can from my chair as well in that in that direction. So, good good to hear. Good to hear. What what do you say then to the to collectors and hobbyists who declare that Upper Deck has become stagnant uh, without any competition in this single license era? Well, you know, I just don't see it. Uh, you know, I think our, our product development team is very competitive internally. They're, they're always trying to fight each other to come up with the next best thing. Um, they're always critiquing each other on, on the products. Uh, and, you know, I think they do a good job of keeping legacy brands kind of year over year fresh. And I think what's tough is you are, as a card manufacturer, you're in this balance where people like consistency. They like brand consistency. They want to collect the same brands year over year, but you need to keep them fresh. And it's, it's a constant juggling of changing it enough to keep it fresh, but not changing it so much that it ticks everybody off. And I think that to me is more of the balancing act that I think is hard for people to understand. Because if you drastically overhaul a set, uh, people say, well, you know, my favorite inserts are gone or my favorite subsets are gone or things of that nature. So it, it's, it's tough, but I, I don't see the, the stagnation. And, and I think the other thing that uh, I think maybe people don't realize is that the team spends a lot of time watching breaks, watching people's reactions to products, going through threads, going through forums, going through social media and getting reaction to all the products they build and, you know, making adjustments where they can. There's nobody on this team that that takes any a day off or, or is real stagnant on anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I agree with you in that, um, you know, I guess people like to say sometimes that, it, that, that there's no, no innovation, but every year I'm seeing new concepts come out. And then I, I start to wonder to myself, how many different iterations are there to cover up? You know, we're talking eight and a quarter square inches for, per card. Right. How many, how many different iterations of design are there yet, yet, all the card companies continue to come out with with new designs and some and oftentimes you know new concepts for cards. So, you know, I uh, I think that we are seeing innovation year over year, and uh, you know I I kind of am impressed that we see as much as we do. I, we're gonna say hello to a few more people in the crowd, then we're gonna go through some pain point topics. How does that sound? That's fine. All right, we'll do that. We'll do that. So, uh, Steve V8 from Coal Harbor. Good evening. Good to see you. Carvin has moved to YouTube, so we know it's him now. Thanks, Carv. <laughs> Past time. Good evening to you. Pedro's in the house. Says, are you licensed to print USA Olympic cards? Uh, no, I believe Panini holds that license. There you go. Steve, sir, his daughter and him love the Goodwin non-sport cards. Fire. Good evening to you. Steve Sir says, congrats on the big deal with NHL, by the way. And we are obviously <laughs> going to get into that. And what does Joe say? Not the most expensive for me, but the 99 NBA Upper Deck Game Used Jersey issue is a game changer. So classic and so emblematic of the evolution of the game used. Thanks, Upper Deck. Now, that's before your time. But it's an interesting point that Joe makes. And it's simply because, you know, the jersey card, you know, those first early sets are definitely very um, desirable and highly pursued. But now a jersey card, you know, it's not as uh, as interesting and as rare as before. So this is going to go in a dire direction I wasn't planning to go into. But Joe's question has me asking you this: what What does Upper Deck do, or or how how much on your radar is it to not um, 
water down a, a specific uh, insert set or or concept so to the point where it becomes the next jersey card? Yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, talking philosophically about that kind of of uh, you know issue, basically, and um, you know that's why you don't see you know fifteen chrome products from us. Um, that's why you don't see all kinds of metal products from us. We really take a lot of time to try to separate every brand, um, give every brand kind of a specific character to it and a specific reason to to use it. Um, the the I would say at times it, it maybe we don't kind of all get all the way there when a, a concept's really good. But like if you take a, a brand like uh, Black Diamond, for example that's the one place where you find diamond cards. Like we don't put that in every single brand and kind of run that down, right? Um, so if you look throughout the products, shadow boxes, shadow boxes are found in SPX. Uh, so if you really look, we, we really take a lot of care to, if we find a good concept to really keep it unique to a particular brand and give people a reason to come back to that brand every year and not kind of flood the market. Um, Jersey cards are tough. And, and look, I think to the Grant's team, Grant and Grant's team, you know, it's funny, we see all this attention being played to uh, great designed inserts, uh, inserts that aren't featuring autographs and game used jerseys. Grant was the first, you know, team to focus on that back, you know, we started kind of shifting away from autographs and game used jerseys. Uh, 2011, 2012, 2013. So we were actually the leader in trying to come up with cool themed inserts and and you know different just technology cards. So you know I, I think they do a really good job of of being careful not to run concepts into the ground. Okay, good, good, good to hear. I'm a big fan of the technology cards, like the essential credentials and all those you know die cut acetate on cardboard or vice versa. That, that's uh, that really gets me. Um, interested in the cards themselves. Uh, speaking about the culture, Skeppy has this question. Uh, can you give us a snapshot of the culture at Upper Deck and ways that you continue to improve it? So that's a great question. You know, the the culture here is that it's very dynamic. It's very fast moving. Um, every employee has a chance to wear multiple hats and basically take on as much responsibility as they can handle. Um, you know, we don't have a culture where you have a very defined role and you only do that role. You know, some people need that as an employee, you need a very defined role. That's that's not the way Upper Deck moves. You know, for us, you know, we move very quickly, we move very fast, we wear a lot of hats, um, we do a lot of things. You know, uh, there was a period of time, um, I would say right before the pandemic where I went out and worked in the warehouse for five days, slinging pallets and, and boxes. That's just the way we do things. Um, but we try to have as much fun as we can. Um, we try to encourage people to communicate, which is always hard um, to come up with new innovations and new ideas, uh, but it's fast. And it is, um, I would say, an adrenaline rush. And to that point, I would say there are a ton of openings at Upper Deck right now. Um, if people are, are looking for a career change, um, the, the one hang up is um, this, Jason, this isn't indeed. All right. <laughs> the, the one hang up is, is that you got to move to San Diego. Right. There you go. <laughs> good, good. Is indeed indeed in the U S yeah. 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 Okay. Just, just making sure that I didn't go over <laughs> the U S viewers heads there. Okay. Good, good, good stuff. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's talk about some of these pain points. So the first one I want to touch on, and you did, 
you know, sort of touched on already, but quality control. You know, when I think of quality control issues, I see people complaining about it. Doesn't matter if it's upper deck or or upper or panini or tops or whomever, but you hear about collation, you hear about centering, you hear about crimping. Um, you know, how the these I believe these are issues that are coming from the third party vendors. And you know, like how how does upper deck, how do you feel when how do you feel like how does that impact you? What do you try to do about it when these things sort of tend to happen more than once? Or I don't want to say over and over and over again, but they happen over again. You know, how do you, uh, what levers can you pull on to make that go away? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little bit frustrating for everybody because the same issues we saw opening packs in the 80s are the same issues that exist now, right? Cards get crimped in the foil. Um, you get chipping, you get creases, you get missing cards. Um, you know, one of the things I remember owning a card shop is sometimes you get a pack, you know, if the pack was supposed to have 10 cards, you get one pack that has 20 cards and then you have another pack that has zero or two. Um, all those issues still exist. And a lot, large part of it has to do with the automation and the technology that that goes into it. Um, look, the, the team, every product release, the team like sits around um, kind of nervous that something wrong is going to go at the at the factory level. And you know, I think with the, the production run, you can actually go do production checks and everything, you know, be working well. And then all of a sudden, one of the, the mechanical pieces on the line jams and you have an issue where you're missing autographs out of a box or you're missing case hit inserts. And there's just no way to prevent all the issues. Um, what you can do is minimize them so that they're not every box or every case um, that you get a, of product. It It's frustrating. And I tell you, collation is probably the biggest issue that the team kind of frets on. Because look, I, I think we all know as collectors that have opened up product for a long time, you're going to have damages, right? That, that's just the nature of the beast, especially autograph cards where the athletes are handling them and they're being shipped all over the world. Um, but Collation is one that absolutely drives us nuts. And you can have six products in a row that are great. And then you have one that's just an absolute train wreck, right? And it is just so disheartening for the team here that puts so much time into building that collation schedule. And to see it come out wrong uh, out of the factory is just, it's really heartbreaking. And I just, I don't know that everybody realize how defeating that is for the team when they see that stuff, but we feel it. And, and I think, you know, especially with the team that we have here, it's emotional. These guys, these products are their babies. When, when the product isn't built, isn't delivering the way it was built, uh, these guys take it really hard. Yeah, I I believe it firsthand, actually. So it's uh, it, it's not never fun to see that. What's the relationship like with the third party printing vendors that you guys use? Well, I think it's really good. I, I think again through the pandemic, it's it's not as strong or close as it, it typically was. Um, but you know, these guys are facing the same uh, supply chain issues that other industries are, are facing, and unfortunately, because we're all so passionate about this industry, it's it's maybe a little more frustrating than delays that we're all seeing in other industries because we want our cards and we want them now uh, and we want them right. Right. So um, I, I think the, there are shortages on paper, there are shortages on glue, there are shortages on foil wrap. Uh, I mean, there are, there are issues all over the place. And in fact, you know, it's one of the things I'm most frustrated right now, we're going to have products that are, are probably somewhere between 12 and 18 months late. 
because of all these different issues. And it's embarrassing and it's it's hard to explain to people, but the manufacturers are like, I, you know, the, the printers say, what do you want us to do? Like, there's nothing we can do. If we don't have glue, can't make cards. If we don't have foil wrap, we can't pack stuff out. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation right now. And I, I anticipate this is going to go on probably for the next 15 months or so. Are there no other options out there for additional third party vendors? Have you guys really like exhausted uh, the supply chain? <laughs> like you wouldn't believe uh, we we've hit everybody we possibly can. And there's just, there's a lot of issues out there right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I believe it. Total different, totally change in direction here, but we're going to address this one question from the chat. Jim wants to know, does Michael own, does Michael Jordan own part of upper deck? No, that is not true. And that, that rumor is I think a 30 year rumor now. So there we go. You just put it to, to rest. <laughs> Michael Jordan does not have any equity in upper deck. No, he does not. Okay. Okay. I want to go down to Andrew Mark's comments as MJ has a long relationship with upper deck. Me, me, so he's speculating maybe shares plus percent of sales plus retainer plus bonus fees plus signings fees goat marketing is this just people making stuff up yeah pretty much okay okay there we go that has been laid to rest everybody michael jordan does not own any bit of upper deck it's simply an agreement you a contract you have with him for, yep. as a spokesperson for autographs that type of thing yes sir okay well nice nice to lay that one to rest um Pastime says Jason spends a lot of time everywhere he goes. He took time to visit my shops while in town. Very nice. Very nice to know that you're making the rounds and meet, meeting the, the the customers and the and the shop owners. Definitely. Yeah, Jeremy, what, what I'll tell you on that is uh, I've become a little bit infamous. I, I do a ton of shop visits and I don't typically tell the shops I'm coming. I like to kind of drop in um, anonymously and um, unannounced. And I'll be, I'll be honest, like there's times where I don't even tell the, if the shop owner doesn't recognize me, I don't tell them who I am uh, because I want to see what the shops are kind of like in the natural environment. And I want to see how I'm treated as a customer. So I have a lot of fun with that. And I have basically since the day I started at Upper Deck. Yeah, that, <laughs> I would probably do the same thing. So uh, this, this Facebook user whose name I don't see right now. So I, I don't know, I think we've addressed this, but what about SPA and the cup? hockey being so late anything you want to say about and i know yeah. i know that you guys don't talk about the cup until you talk about the cup so <laughs> maybe you're going to go against the rule here i don't know but can you just speak to those two brands that obviously have a ton of equity and people look forward to every year yeah i mean the the stuff that's typically at the last half of our calendar for a hockey year is way off course so i you won't expect to see probably any of that stuff till after the first of the year which again is really disappointing but it's definitely uh caught up at the at the print end for sure so there's right. a it, it's not just those two it's it's there's several of them that are kind of caught up the the ones that everybody's used to coming out at the back half of the calendar so that's a good sort i guess segue into some actual canceled products for the first time that i can really remember you guys have had to cancel some of the some brands that have been around for right. a long time i mean trilogy has been around since 0506 ice has been around since what 0203, 0102, something like that. And you guys recently announced that these two products for the 2021 season are canceled. Um, why? I mean, is it simple supply chain, just like we've been talking about? Yeah, they're just, there are, especially in those two products, there are materials there that are problematic right now. 
uh, for the, the manufacturing side of it. So, you know, in, instead of just kind of continuing to hang out, especially with the number of late releases we had, we, we had to, to make some sacrifices. And I think uh, what I think is important for the collectors and I know is important for our team is to figure out how to maintain continuity. And they're working through that. I believe there's gonna be some announcements pretty soon on how they're gonna do that. So if you remember, um, there were a couple brands when we went down to a shared license with the NHL that we put in as inserts into other products to keep kind of the, the legacy of those products alive on a yearly basis. Um, you know, I don't have the specifics that I'll let the team kind of announce, but there is a, a focus on making sure the continuity of those brands continue and there isn't a missed year along the way. Oh, that, that's really good news. Cause I was going to ask you, you know, how will them, how will, you know, that omission impact that brand's equity in the event that they come back? So from what I'm hearing, uh, they, the intention is that they will come back and not only that, but that there will be some continuity even for this, for this, yep. uh, void, this year of, of the void. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, that, that's, that, that's kind of good. That's good news. I think for sure. Um, okay. A couple more comments here. Uh, Steve Sir says undercover boss, LOS, or sort of, but not really. <laughs> and then, and then I don't know, if, I don't know if anyone Troy noticed about a minute ago. I was snickering. He says I also don't let the LCS know what I'm talking <laughs> in. <laughs> well, why would you? You know, okay. It's not like you're making reservations like you do for a restaurant. Uh, Joe Perot says, in the same way that Panini does unlicensed baseball, has there been any consideration of Upper Deck doing unlicensed basketball, or is that even possible? Well, I, I think the tricky part there is, is we have a memorabilia license with the NBA. So I don't think they would take very kindly to us uh, scrubbing their jerseys and putting out basketball cards. You know, we, we have to respect them as a licensor and they're a great partner on the memorabilia side. Okay, good to know. Thanks for that. Thanks for the question, Joe. Steve VH says, can you give an idea of what the average player might make for <laughs> signing autographs for Upper Deck? I realize the bigger stars and legends have quite the contracts. I, I mean, it really is all over the board. Um, you know, signing rates can be, you know, a dollar all the way up to, you know, a thousand dollars an autograph and the number they sign, it, it varies on every, every signing that they do. So it, there really is no kind of average per se, cause it's a mess. You know, the number of autograph signings we do is, is huge. Are you willing? Can you give a range? Like, like, are there? Is there? Let me ask you this, Jason. Is any player making three bucks an auto? Is the is the minimum ten? Like anything like that that you can share? I mean, it really is like all over the board. I would say you know as low as a dollar, depending on. And again, we do all kinds of sports. We do all kinds of entertainment products. Um, you know, you rarely see anything lower than a dollar and it, it goes up pretty high depending on, on who the, the actor or athlete is. So it is, it is all over the board. Okay. Uh, Michael Ham just pops in and says, why have we not seen Michael Jordan autos in products? And I don't, is that accurate? I feel like there are Michael Jordan autos coming out in some of the multi-sports and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, typically Goodwin has them every year. Uh, you know, and off the top of my head, I don't know if there's other products that, that feature MJ autos. Uh, I would anticipate you're going to see them in Metal Universe Champions when that comes out as well. Okay, good. I'm very excited about that product, that project. And we'll talk about uh, Gene McLeod and Arena Designs and all that shortly. Uh, Troy reminds everybody to hit the like button and uh, help, help me out. I appreciate that, Troy. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, and uh, Greg jumps in with the same thing. Hit that thumbs up button. Thank you so much, Greg. Much appreciated, pal. Let's move on to the next hot topic pain point I'm calling. That is redemption. So there, there's two, two things. First, I want to scroll back up in my comments here to uh, Darcy had a comment a little bit earlier. He says right here, um, I had a question. When redemptions are outdated and are sent out possibly for replacements, how old do the cards go back in the inventory? So if I have a if I have a redemption that's, that's expired, an upper deck's going to honor it, but send me a redemption replacement. Like how far back do redemption replacements go? And if you're if you're even you know in the know on this, Jason, uh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, honestly, I I don't know. Um, they're not really well tracked. Uh, there's you know th there's a bunch of stuff sitting there um, throughout the years, and they just kind of go and grab whatever is is handy at any given time. I don't I don't think there's any you know, great organizational system, unfortunately. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, as, as long as there's, so, I, uh, hey, I mean, I'm not gonna tell you how to, how to run it, but <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think we, we we as the collectors of the hobby, we wanna have some confidence that uh, that number one, you know, if we send in a, an, a, an expired redemption or we're gonna get a replacement that, you know, that, that there's gonna be sufficient inventory to satisfy that that need that, that you know, um, I won't say contract because of what's been going on with Panini lately, but I well, actually let's talk about that. So there's this issue, this lawsuit that was just brought up against Panini. Um, and I just was, you know, reading some of uh, Paul Lesko's tweets about it saying that, you know, uh, Panini has stated that they, because they don't have a contract with the collector, there's no real legal claim on redemptions. The better business Bureau of North Texas has, has said that they've received 237 complaints against Panini. What is Upper Deck's position on on that whole redemption kind of uh, issue that's really coming to light here in the media in the last like 48 hours? Yeah, I mean, I don't really want to comment on anybody else's lawsuit or, or their issues. What I what I like to focus on is Upper Deck. And I mean, if you look at our Better Business Bureau ranking, we, we, we rank as an A. Uh, our team does a great job helping customers and making sure they're taken care of. Uh, redemptions stink. Uh, and, you know, for us, we, we've tried to proactively replace uh, guys that haven't signed or are an issue. Uh, our team has proactively tried to reach out to people and say, hey, this guy's a deadbeat. Like he's not going to sign his autograph or the cards got lost. And a lot of times they get lost by FedEx or in shipment. Um, sometimes the athlete loses them. You know, we we try if we can uh, to proactively reach out to the the consumer and, and say, hey, we've got an issue with this. Like, let's get a replacement going for you. So, I mean, uh, the team takes a lot of pride in handling those issues. So, you know, I think hopefully we don't we don't have all the issues that that some of the other companies do. But again, it's it, it's hard for me to to comment on other people's legal matters or or their stance on stuff or how they're performing. I've, yeah, well, I can a little bit more, and I'll just say that. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to attack anybody, but right. I'll just say that the uh, the response that kind of made its rounds on Instagram and elsewhere uh, was, I believe, the legal response for for yeah. for a legal case, not necessarily their position on how they want to treat their customers. Despite that, it's still not a good look that that's that's what gets out there, and now that's what the the a lot of the hobby thinks is is the is the position. So. Yeah, I mean, and, 
And, and Jeremy, I'll say with that, you know, most of the lawyers that litigate cases in this industry don't know the industry, don't understand the industry. So, you know, a lot of times what you read is a legal position from somebody who doesn't know trading cards. Uh, yeah. So that, that's that's just the fact of it. Yeah, no, I, I, under, I understand that. And I think I think, you know, that makes sense. But, yeah, as they say, perception is uh, yep. is it nine, nine tenths of reality. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if. if it's the look, the look is just going to be tough to shake for a, a few weeks, at least here. Although the hobby does, you know, seem to move forward. Um, <laughs> Tiger Jordan by his name asks a very sort of topical question for him says, uh, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. Jason, can you share approximately how many memorabilia and card items Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan sign annually for upper deck? Yeah. Like I don't, I don't not going to disclose anything from those contracts. I would say it's not a whole lot. There you go. Not a whole lot. That's, that's something. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Here's another uh, question uh, that Les is wondering. If you could comment on another rumor, uh, Wayne Gretzky's contract coming up for renewal soon, and he potentially won't be re-signing. Yeah, that's a really bad rumor. I would say there's no tr no truth to anything there. Not to any of it, even the part that it's uh, that is coming up for renewal soon. Okay. No, I mean, we, we have a 30-year relationship with, with Wayne. It's not ending anytime soon. He goes on to ask, Jason, uh, does Everdeck have any plans to get more Gretzky game used jerseys to uh, put into cards? You know, the team's always sourcing items. I, honestly, I don't know what they have on their hit list or what they have in stock. What I would say is, is that a large portion of what we've seen in auction over through the pandemic has been fake, um, including jerseys that went for big money. Uh, the, the nice part is, is uh, Wayne does verify every game used jersey we purchase and authenticates it for us. So uh, it, it's interesting. No, that's cool. Okay, let's uh, let's go on to uh, print runs. So, you know, some cards have, have uh, stamped numbering on them. We know exactly how many of them there are. Some don't, you know, like Jambalaya's is a good example. We all want to know how many there are. And no matter how many times I, I try and ask Billy to tell me, he he just will not tell me. And it's starting to bother me, but good on you, Billy, for not telling me. Let's talk about Connor McDavid Young Guns, though, Jason, because that's a card that is, um, you know, very highly pursued in the hobby. It's sort of that commodity card for the player who is, you know, by really the face of the NHL and I think uh, the darling of, of, the, of the hockey world right now. So there, I've heard all sorts of speculation about how many young guns <laughs> were printed that year in 1560. And I know it was uh, one of the earlier years of EPAC, if not the first year. You know, I've heard I've heard 25,000, I've heard 50,000, and then I've heard every hundreds of thousands up to 500,000. You know, so two questions. Number one, and I know you're not going to answer it, but I'll ask it anyway. How many are there? And number two, why won't you tell us? <laughs> well, one, I have no idea. Uh, typically on ratio cards like that, you know, the team doesn't even keep track of them. Um, so that's just kind of the way it is. And honestly, like the, the history of the industry is, is we don't have print runs on most of the cards, right? Like nobody truly knows how many Mickey Mantle rookies are there. You know, how many are sitting out in the Harbor that they, they sunk off the barge. Right. And, and that's, that's part of the fun of the hobby is that speculation for better, or for worse. Sometimes that speculation gets us into trouble. Um, but not knowing adds something to it. And, and I've always kind of liked that of, of not kind of knowing what, what exactly it is and trying to figure out from what you see popping up on eBay or, you know, trying, you know, I love watching people try to calculate uh, print runs. 
um, that's always fun as well. And I, I think that makes the hobby fun. I think it does too. And when you use pack odds to kind of, you know, extrapolate the amount of cases and how many of this and that, let me just ask you this, because I know you're not going to tell us and you don't even know, but are people sort of on the right track or are they, are they, you know, have you ever seen some of those breakdowns, those calculations? You're like, Hey, you know, he didn't nail it, but that guy's on the right track. Like, or is anybody on the right track out there in these, in these uh, calculations? You know, I haven't, I haven't seen or paid attention to any calculations recently, but I, I will tell you over the years that I've been here, I've seen some people who are pretty darn close. Um, and honestly, like the question is, is can we hire those people? Uh, because you know, they're, they're cranking the spreadsheets and, and if anybody knows our product team, like they, they spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. So yeah, I, I see it quite a bit. And interestingly enough, um, you know, some people calculate and they make a mistake and they're way off and some people are pretty close and it's fun for us to watch. Yeah, it's yeah, for sure. And it's fun for us who don't go to those lengths to build those spreadsheets <laughs> and do those calculations to, to have a bit of an idea of how many right. their cards there might be. So, so you're not going to tell me how many jambalayas this year? No. No. Okay. All right. Thanks anyway. See you later. <laughs> um, okay. Couple more uh, comments here. Now, I, again, I'm going to put them up there, but I don't, I have a feeling that this might not be up your alley. But uh, with the amount of heavyweights you have contracts with, are you going to be releasing a sports legends patch auto set with Jordan Gretzky? You know, I'm guessing Tiger Woods, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I don't see anything in the immediate future. I mean, if if you really want a kind of a heavyweight product, I don't even know if there's any left out there, but all-time greats multi-sport came out years ago and was a killer product that had a ton of our spokesmen and then some of the best athletes of all time. That's, to me, the the place to to really dive into that that spokesman grouping. Yeah, okay, fair. And Andrew Marks wants to know, are you guys still sort of buying cards on the secondary market for buyback products? Well, I think you got the wrong product there or the wrong company there. We don't, we don't do that typically unless we, you know, we do, buyback. well, we buyback. do buyback, but it, it's, it's not a regular product, right? Like it's once in a blue moon. And honestly, that product is so tough. The team really doesn't ever want to do it again. Okay. Fair enough. I can only imagine building a checklist where everything's basically a one of one <laughs> is, uh, is quite, quite the, uh, quite, quite the endeavor. And Ed Seat says, is there a chance that upper deck could bring prominent cuts back? Wow. I didn't expect that, that question. I mean, that, that product was, uh, is in the archives a bit. Uh, it's not on the radar. I won't say it won't come back, but it's definitely not on the radar. Okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, and the next question that just popped up from uh, from Kenneth Pastime is exactly what I was just about to go to. We'll throw it up there to, to show him some love. What event or what event or your is your team most looking forward to attending again? So I was I was going to basically ask you. So I was the national in August here, and I saw big setups by by Tops, Panini, uh, Leaf, and others. I didn't see upper deck there. Uh, why? So you know, I think the one thing that I really you know, take a lot of care in with Upper Deck is we really view the staff as family. And, you know, uh, look, the family has all kinds of dynamics, but I, I really care about the staff. And I was not comfortable sending them to the national. And I just didn't feel like we were at a place. And quite frankly, I'm still not feeling like we're at a place where I want to put our employees with thousands of people in an indoor setting and risk them getting COVID. You know, and and I'll be honest, I feel really good about that decision for the national. 
you know, I, I talked to a high-end collector that, uh, that I'm very good friends with. He had a private dinner with 14 high-end collectors. Five of them got COVID. They were all vaccinated. Five of them got COVID. One ended up in the hospital. And I know there's other companies. Their staff got COVID. And I, I just don't feel comfortable putting our staff in a position where they could get sick and potentially die. And that's an issue for me. That's an issue for me. And I understand that the, that the customers want to see our staff. They want to interact our staff. But my primary focus is keeping everybody safe because to me, they are family. And I, I couldn't live with myself if I was to put them at risk and, and something potentially happened to, to one of our employees. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a really fair answer. Definitely. Um, what about the expo? The expo is in Toronto coming up here in about a week and a half. I'm going to go there. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Is up is Upper Deck going to have a presence there? We'll have a presence, but I am not ha planning on having any of our employees there. And you know, it, it's two things. One, what I just told you, like I'm just not comfortable uh, having our our team out there yet. Number two, we didn't know if the border was going to be fully open or not. And when we plan for events, they have to be planned pretty far ahead of time. So, you know, we made the decision a while ago that hey, we're going to have a presence. We'll support the show. We love the expo. Uh, it's probably our most important show every year, uh, but we're going to support it from a distance. And, and, you know, we may have one or two people that really want to go that we allow end up going. Um, but I'm not planning on having the, the typical Upper Deck staff that, that we usually have staff that show. Will you, but will you have like the section, the area there? Have you been, you must've been there. Yeah, I've been to the Expo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, you obviously know what how, how the setup is there. It's pretty big. It's spectacular. Is there going to be that sort of presence just with like with um, temp work, like hired out workers or or is it going to be uh, different? You know, honestly, I, I don't know what the plans are. I don't get involved with the planning for that show. Uh, I, so I, I can't really speak to what the what the setup's going to be. OK, fair enough. Now. The Spring Expo will be coming uh, hopefully the first weekend of May. Would you say, and I know you we never COVID just seems to come in waves and waves, but right. you know, if if we don't see a next wave or what have you, can we sort of uh look forward to seeing upper deck staff at the spring expo in May? Yeah, you know what I'm trying to balance with right now, Jeremy, is at what point we we get back to normal from running a company, right? And I, I think that's that's where we're at. You know, right now we're hoping that after the first of the year that we can start kind of traveling and doing things as normal. But quite frankly, you know, our protocols here with regard to COVID are pretty strict. So if I have a team that travels, when they come back, they can't come into the office for, for a prolonged period of time, which causes issues in that respect too. So, you know, for us, I think it's day by day, month by month. You know, my hope is that after the first of the year, we'll go back to supporting events the, the way we typically do. But again, you know, it's, it's too hard to tell right now. We just don't know where this thing is going. I mean, hopefully we continue to trend down and this thing you know, becomes a minor nuisance at, at some point, but I'm a little concerned where we're going to go into the holidays over the next couple months. Yeah. And then where things come a couple weeks after that. Right. So yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Um, definitely some uncertainty there. Okay. So just, we've had people come and go all the time. If you just got here, everybody, uh, welcome to sports cars live night. This is Jason Mashra joining me. He is the president of upper deck. If you don't know that yet, that's uh, who he is. And, and so lots to talk about. We're going to get into the the renewal of the NHL and the NHLPA license right away here in, in a few minutes, actually. 
if you are new to the to the show to sports cards live uh, welcome and please do go ahead and subscribe to the channel greatly appreciate that interviews just about every saturday night a uh, couple questions here from the from the chat uh, jason chris carter you know this is a this is an interesting question because i mean you know the packaging is cardboard it's easy to put in the recycle bin but one thing i've noticed and it's not it, it's it's the it's our it's our whole industry it's the whole hobby is that some packaging is pretty extravagant uh, to the point where is it necessary but i do understand the importance of the the opening of the product to feel like you're actually you know even when you open up a cell phone a new a new apple phone all these things it's a process can you speak a little bit to you know is there are there any sort of um intentions to become more green as a hobby and reduce the the amount of of waste yeah i mean i i think the the boxes are definitely you know it's standard cardboard uh, they should be for the most part compostable um recyclable the the issue to me is the foil wrappers quite frankly and you know we've looked at some alternatives we're, we're looking at uh paper wraps uh, i think we can get there um, the paper is a little bit more expensive than the, than the foil. Uh, you know, the the issue I think for us as a company is foil wraps are are synonymous with our brand, right? That's what we came out with. That was the innovation back in in '89. So, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a tough balance. But we are looking at all those things. Um, I, I will say, like as an industry, we definitely are far from the, the most uh, environmentally friendly industry when it comes to packaging. Um, the cards, I don't worry about as much because for the most part, people keep the cards, you know, they're keepsakes. Um, but it, the packaging, we can definitely do a better job on for sure. Yeah. And it's not only the card companies, it's the supplies that we burn through. We burn right. through top right. loaders and one touches and all that too. So okay uh and pedro this is an interesting question just speaking about the relationship with com c uh in regards to the supplying uncirculated cards to them directly uh he says many thanks for that relationship is there anything you can tell us about about your your uh arrangement with com c and and i guess the the whole epac uh partnership yeah i mean for us epac is another distribution channel for us and yeah we provide cards to them that they scan in for epac so you know the way we view our distribution paths is we have mass retail so your walmart's your shoppers drug your target your um london drug uh canadian tire places like that and then you have your trading card shops and then the third piece for us is epac and as part of that, we, we send a bunch of cards to ComC, they scan them front and back, and then, you know, people can pull them virtually uh, out of their packs on EPAT. Yeah. Okay. Hope that uh, answered your question, Pedro. Okay. So here's my, uh, I just want to see this comment that just came in. Here, let's bring this one up. Uh, 23 Aaron says, why does UDA continue to price out the, every, the average everyday collector the prices on Michael Jordan items on your website are too high, but Upper Deck Authenticated doesn't sell cheaper unsigned MJ items anymore. Why? Is that something you can uh, speak to? Well, look, I think there's a lot to digest there. So, you know, it's interesting. We talk about autographed Michael Jordan UDA pieces being high, but in compared to his trading cards, they're not high. 
Um, I mean, look at the the way his rare trading cards are selling, and a lot of the the pieces that we sell are limited edition pieces. So what we've actually seen over the last two years is that people are flocking to our autograph memorabilia because they're bargains compared to some of their rare trading cards, and they display better, quite frankly. Um, and I can't believe I'm saying it as a trading card collector, but you know, autograph jerseys, autograph eighteen by twenties. If you got a spot in your your basement or in the back of your Zoom meeting or whatever, like you're you're going there and the athletes we have, no, they're not cheap because of the greatest athletes of all time. And I'll tell you, their signature rates aren't going down anytime soon. Uh, and the amount they're signing isn't going up anytime soon. So, you know, the stuff is very, very limited. Um, I, I think the second piece there is very poignant in the fact that, um, you know, we don't have a lot of unsigned items. Um, I think we have a couple things like fat heads um, in, our, in our relationship with fat head and a couple things. I, I do think we can do more. But honestly, when I took over Upper Deck Authenticated here at Upper Deck, people weren't buying the unsigned items. They just didn't sell. And that's honestly why we stopped selling a lot of the unsigned items. They only wanted the autographed items. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of like the prices of Michael Jordan autographs and other things, we'll, I'll just say we'll say hello to Ken Golden, who's jumped in. And I think he's partially responsible for that, uh, for the value of, of these cards and, and the Michael Jordan autographs and then some. Uh, let's go up to Skeppy's comment here. Do you work with grading companies to help maintain authenticity and provide archival records? And this to, this is a this is an important question for me too because I'm I'm you know patch faking is is a problem in our hobby and uh, and I've always I've always thought that you know having photographic uh, archives of of these patches would go a long way for the long term health of the hobby and the values of those cards. So. Yeah, if you, I'll, I'll leave it at that and let you address it. You know, I, I think, you know, having relationships with both grading companies, um, you know, authentication companies and or auctions is a dangerous thing for a trading card company. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've really maintained and looked out for since I've been running Upper Deck is conflicts of interest. And, you know, I think aligning with any of the grading companies is, is a problem for a trading card company because the perception, again, we live in a, in a, in a industry where a lot of people are skeptical and they should be quite frankly, um, cause there are a lot of things that have caused them to be skeptical. You know, if we get too close to a grading company, then the, the, the perception is going to be oh they, they favor that company and they give their cards higher grades. Um, so th that's always an issue for us. So we don't have any official relationships with anybody. Um, as far as giving them uh, archival records, that's a delicate balance for us because a lot of that stuff is proprietary information. And if we give it out to somebody, obviously that opens up the pool of who, who knows what and actually opens up the opportunity for people to do more shady things with our cards. Uh, because that kind of that pool of knowledge has now expanded. So while I think in, in some cases it may make sense to give them that information to help them authenticate that stuff, it also leads to the possibility that you could end up with more issues. So, you know, I, I don't have a perfect answer for that. I, I will tell you, um, we are working on uh, technology, and I think Mike Phillips had alluded to this before, that that will help with that. I think what's ironic uh, and an unappreciated benefit of the EPAC system is all that stuff is scanned, right, front and back. So you have all that information. Now, that doesn't help customers who buy the cup and SPA, which is 100%, you know, hobby 
uh, only and doesn't appear on EPAC or in mass retail. But, you know, I think we've learned a lot from EPAC and especially when it comes to the authenticity, because now we have a, a uh, saved record of every card that's ever appeared on EPAC. And that that's going to lead to some things down the road. Okay. Well, okay. As long as it's going to, I like that it's going to lead to some things down the road. Uh, Darcy wants to know, is there going to be another Canadian tire set coming up? <laughs> uh, we don't have anything on tap. I would love to do another uh, set with Canadian tire for sure. Okay, I will cool. say, I will tease, there is going to be uh, a pretty unique big set after the turn of the year up in Canada. Got it. That's good to know. Uh, I just want to say to Greg Novus, sorry, Greg, I don't understand the question. If you want to repost it, I'll, I'll take another look at it. Um, okay, let's let's switch gears. Thank you to the chat. You've kept us busy for, for some time here, but let's talk about what was the big news that just came out that I think took a lot of people by surprise considering what Fanatics has been up to, uh, what we learned about Fanatics really in August. Uh, but the big news is that Upper Deck was able to extend or renew the exclusive contract with the NHL and the NHLPA. Um, I get my two-part question for you, Jason. Uh, was that your doing? And the second part is like, how proud are you of this? And how important is it? Well, I think everything here at Upper Deck is a team. I can't take sole credit for anything. The, the, the team is responsible for, for getting that renewal. And that, that goes to everybody in this company. You know, our, our company takes great care of hockey. Uh, we spend a lot of time communicating with the NHL and NHLPA, and they know it. Um, we are a hockey company um, to, the, to the depths of our souls. And I think that matters. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really proud that we have a team that is doing such a great job that they would continue to entrust us with that license going forward. That's, that's good to hear. So do you know, did Fanatics attempt to secure NHL and PA rights? I think everybody can assume that Fanatics is trying to get every license on the face of the planet right now. <laughs> okay. And uh, the next question is going to be, now we, we've already established tonight that Michael Jordan does not own any equity in Upper Deck to put to rest that longstanding uh, rumor. What about uh, the NHL or the PA? Was, was equity a part of the deal? Look, I can't, I can't talk to anything regarding our contact, uh, contracts. I know there's a lot of questions about guarantees and royalties and ownership and this and that. I, I, can't, I really can't get into it. Okay, fair, fair enough. So, we'll, so the hobby will continue to speculate. Yeah, unfortunately, that one will let everybody's kind of rumors run wild. Let me ask you this then. I might ask you a couple more questions you can't answer, but feel free uh, not to, because I'm going to. I respect the privacy of the legal contract. Um, are there any changes coming with the renewal? Any new freedoms? Any new restrictions? Uh, any new terms that are going to kick in uh, when that when that date occurs? No, you know, I, I think what you're going to see is consistency. And, and I think that's what hockey card collectors were most concerned about is you won't see big changes coming coming forward. Um, what you will see is an extension into NFTs uh, and some work into NFTs to bring officially licensed NHL and NHLPA uh, NFTs to market for the first time. But, you know, you can expect kind of more of the same um, as far as the brands that we deliver, the, the number of brands we deliver, 
the channels of distribution, which I know is really important to everybody. You know, I, I think it's it was important for the NHL that we continue to satisfy every level of consumer so that they can buy hockey cards no matter how they collect, right? So whether you want to just, all you want to buy is Tim Hortons every year, you can continue to go to Tim Hortons and get your hockey cards there. If you want to buy at a trading card shop, you can continue to go and, and buy at your favorite trading card shop. If you want to buy at Walmart or Target, uh, again, or, or shoppers, you have that opportunity. Or if you want to buy online, you can go do EPAC, you know, and, and EPAC has been vital for us as a way to reach collectors all over the globe that don't have access to a trading card store. You know, we've sold hockey cards in Yemen, uh, which is something I never thought I'd say. But again, there's no trading card stores in Yemen. The only way for them to buy, you know, hobby type product is is through EPAC. And we've reached a number of consumers across the globe. So, you know, I would say we're going to continue to focus and innovate on the products and, and keep doing the same things that, that we've been doing. So this may be redundant, but I, I would just want to make sure I ask this specifically. Um, in the negotiations or the, the for the renewal, was did the NHL itself like what I'm trying to get at is here is like how interested are they in the hobby and us collectors like I know they're interested in their royalty they're interested in the terms of the deal and being properly represented by Upper Deck which has done a great job of it for all these years but are they is the NHL and or the PA are they interested in what the collector wants and do they do they put any emphasis on things like brand continuity as an example so so Jeremy it's a great question and and it and and I, I can't wait to answer this so what has been a pet peeve of mine with all the headlines that have happened over the last nine months from IPOs to valuations to license changes not once have I seen anybody talk about the impact on the collector not once, not in the in the media. Nobody said, hey, this change is good for the collector. This IPO is good for the collector. All it's talked about is the money it's providing for the owners or the leagues or the licensors. And I think that's the biggest difference between the NHL and the NHLPA and what they did here was that they do a ton of due diligence every time the license comes up. They talk to multiple companies, they talk to shops, they talk to distributors, they talk to end collectors, and they are highly engaged and they do care about the legacy of the brands and the continuity for the collectors and providing value. Uh, more than any licensor I've ever worked with, quite frankly. And, and I do think that that is a big difference here. And I think everybody should know the amount of due diligence that these guys put in as licensors, because I just don't see it anywhere else. So, okay, appreciate that answer. And, and uh, it's, it's nice to know. It's nice to know. Now, let's go back in time, not that far, just a couple months to when the we were all just dumbstruck by the announcement that tops lost baseball and Panini's losing football and basketball. Um, what were your thoughts that day, Jason, like as the president of upper deck trading cards, what, what was your, what were your feelings that day? What, what were your initial thoughts? Well, my initial thoughts is as a longtime collector, not having tops baseball cards was never fathomable. Uh, I, I just, I never saw the day it's, it's, and as a as a as an American, and I'm sure there's a lot of Canadians that'll kind of roll their eyes at this. Like Tops is Americana. I mean, it's what we grew up with. It's what our parents grew up with. It's it's kind of like apple pie. 
And, you know, whether you have issues with them or not, like that's what you view as baseball cards. And, and we hope that our brand has felt the same way with hockey cards. Um, but it was shocking. And quite frankly, in our lifetime, it's probably the biggest news in the trading card industry that we've ever seen. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I believe it is the biggest news ever to come out of our hobby is, is that uh, is that tops can no longer make baseball cards. It, it, it's kind of mind blowing just just when you say it out loud. Um, was one of your thoughts or feelings that they're coming after hockey next? And, and, and well, first, was that a, was that one of your concerns? Well, honestly, I think we, we've, we've been worried about fanatics coming after the licenses for several years. This was not uh, a new issue for us. You know, they had been dabbling in it. Uh, if you go to their, their website, they, they're slabbing our cards. Uh, they're having athletes sign our cards, uh, which I, I, honestly, I don't appreciate. Um, there, are, there are a lot of signs that they were coming towards our market. So we anticipated it was coming. And... So did you, as soon as you learned this news, did you guys get on the phone with the NHL and the PA and just sort of try to see where things were at and if there had already been damage done? Like, were you concerned that the damage was already done or it was in the process and you'd be too, like, a little late to the dance sort of thing? Well, I, I think it took a little while for everybody to absorb what was going on. You know, we have we have ongoing conversations with our licensors on, on a, on a weekly, if not daily, um, basis. So, you know, we definitely were on the phone and we're on the phone with them all the time and definitely reached out and said, okay, like, you know, we have, we have what we have now, let's talk about the long range. And I looked at it as an opportunity, uh, quite frankly, to say, hey, let's let's talk about what a long range plan looks like. We're typically very concerned about what's happening this year, what's maybe happening two or three years out. Hey, let's talk about the long time horizon. So honestly, I viewed it as an opportunity. Okay. And when the announcement came out and there must have been some, you know, just a little bit of fear throughout uh, the company, what did you say to the staff? What did you say to the staff at Upper Deck? between the news coming out and your, and the announcement of your renewal? Well, you know, it's kind of a circle the wagons moment of, Hey, let's go, let's go take this as an opportunity to go lock these rights in for a very long time. Um, typically these contracts are very short. I think what, what fanatics gave us an opportunity to do um, is to, to lock in longer than we normally do. So we looked at it as an opportunity. We, we took advantage of the opportunity and, and we had fun with it. And quite frankly, we got a chance to be maybe more uh, long-range thinking, long-range planning with our licensors than, than we typically are, which was which was nice, uh, nice change of pace. So does that then mean that you like that there's a plan now that goes out, say I'm just gonna use 10 years as an, ex right. as an example. You guys have some sort of loose outline for what the next 10 years are gonna look like from a product calendar perspective and innovation perspective. Is there any any hints you can give us to what that long-term plan looks like? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it um, deals with kind of innovation and expansion. You know, quite frankly, the NFTs as an expansion off of EPAC and some of the things we're doing, I definitely play a role in that. But yeah, I mean, we've mapped out kind of a long-range future. And I think, you know, for us, uh, much like how we kind of tweak our brands year to year, our strategy doesn't drastically change it just gets augmented and expanded upon or evolves here and there. 
Uh, and that's really the way we, we do things. Like you don't have to completely reinvent things, but you can continue to improve upon things or, or expand what you're doing. You know, I, I can't say like there's going to be a whole bunch more products because we just don't believe in adding a bunch of products to the calendar for no reason. Um, you know, if you look at what we've done since we've had this, the exclusive this go around is we've added a couple products as the market's gotten bigger, but we still have by far the, the lowest number of overall brands and products out of the four sports. And that's yeah. purposeful. Yeah, that's, uh, it's a good thing, I think. Uh, so when you, when the, when the deal was renewed and uh, you, you came out of your Zoom meetings or whatever it was uh, and, and sort of started to share the news at the company with all the staff. How did you, how did you let everybody know? And was it like celebration time? Was it air of relief time? How did everybody respond at the company? Yeah. So we held a kind of an all staff meeting. So we, we hold regular all staff meetings here. And, and quite frankly, the reason I do that is because this, this industry is so rife with rumors and innuendo that I like to hold all staff meetings on a regular basis with the staff to keep them up to date so that they don't get sucked into the rumors and the, in the innuendos. I always tell people, if you don't hear it from me, it's not true. Um, so we held an all staff meeting on Monday, uh, right before the press release came out to, to notify them. And, you know, I think for me, unfortunately I'm terrible. Like I don't celebrate anything. I, I am kind of like that consummate athlete that just moves on to the next issue. Uh, I don't celebrate, but, um, I, I think there was probably a sense of relief for a lot of the staff. Uh, the, a lot of the staff was wondering like, what's going to happen? What's our future? You know, what's the company going to look like in, in five years or, or three years or two years? Um, and I, I think it was good for them to be able to kind of put that behind them. Um, I unfortunately wasn't here in the building at the time, so I, I can't really speak to, to how the staff reacted other than what I saw on Zoom. Um, but for me, I think more than anything, uh, again, this is like a family to me and, and to make sure that their future is secure and, and we can continue to push forward and innovate and bring great products to the, to the people were, was, a, was a huge sense of uh, accomplishment for, for our team. Yeah, I'm sure it's a, a sigh of relief for many people as well. Um, tell, can you just, because I heard, I heard a story that you kind of slow played it. You kind of, you, you had the news to share with everybody, yeah. but you kind of positioned it like, okay, guys here, tell the story of how you delivered the news. Well, you know, for us, um, especially in my time here, especially as my time leading Upper Deck, we've been just hammered by rumors and speculation from, you know, we, we, we were, for, there was a period of time where everybody was telling, uh, and other, other companies in the industry was telling everybody we were going out of business. Uh, there was a period of time where people said that we we're going to be bought by Panini. Um, there was a period of time going into uh, the license renewal in 2014 that we were told we were out of hockey. Um, and, you know, it was basically the same thing all over again. History kind of repeats itself all over again. Like it's rumors and it's always upper deck, at least in my time here, has always been the underdog. We're always the one that's going away or going out of business or being bought. And I, I wanted, when I, when I spoke to the employees, I wanted to remind them of that. Like we are and have been since my time here, the underdog. And there's always this rumor that, you know, it's inevitable that upper deck is either out of a license or is being bought by somebody and it's always wrong. And yeah, I slow played it a little bit and I, I kind of played to that, that sensibility that, Hey, you know, don't listen to everybody. Like we're, we're fine. You guys are doing a great job. Yeah. 
good. Okay. And I, I'm again, a big relief for everybody. <laughs> I'm sure with fanatics coming in and whatever they're going to, however, they're going to make cards. Are you concerned about talent migration from upper deck to fanatics? Well, I mean, I, I think you always worry about that a little bit. What what I will say is, is that the people that are here are here because they love being a part of Upper Deck and being a part of the brand and being part of the family. So um, I think you have to be conscious of it. A am I really worried about it? I'm not. And I think part of that is, is nobody really knows what they're doing. I don't, I don't care what anybody says. You know, there's a lot of reports. There's a lot of speculation in the in the in the chat rooms and things of that nature. Like they haven't announced anything. Nobody knows what they're doing right now. So it's really hard for an employee to get excited about you know jumping to another company when they they don't really have an idea of what's going on there. So, you know, we we try to take care of our staff as best we can. Um, you can't prevent everybody from leaving. Um, I think there's there's going to be some talent that that goes there i i think probably the other companies are a bit more at risk than we are at this point yeah so let me ask you this then i mean you're really in my mind you're one of four people who run trading card companies and uh two of your counterparts at other companies um are, are going through a bit of a different you know set of circumstances than you are right now so you know, considering that you have some insights into how the president of Tops and the president of, of Panini might be operating or thinking or, or managing, what what do you feel? What's going on? And I ask you this with some trepidation. But what's what are they feeling and thinking right now? How are they how are they going to adapt or pivot? What, what do you think is going on over there? Considering that they there's a finite end to their to their licenses right now. Their big well, you one. know, I I always joke that I came to Upper Deck at the exact wrong time. Um, so I came here in 06 and a lot of things went really wrong at Upper Deck shortly after I got to Upper Deck. And what they're going through, honestly, is what I lived through in my early days at Upper Deck when I was just a brand manager. Um, they, there was license changes galore, right? And there were a lot of issues and lawsuits going on at the time. It wasn't pretty. And I, I think what you'll see is they will evolve. And they will adapt and change. If you have good staff there, and I have to assume they do, that they will just figure out how to adapt. That's what we did. And everything kind of worked out fine for us. So I think you'll see the same thing with Tops and Panini. Uh, you know, they have, they have sharp people. They'll figure out how to adapt with the licenses they have and the landscape that they're, they're dealing with. Yeah. Okay, good. Fair enough. Fair enough. So do you think Fanatics is going to buy Tops or Panini? Well, you know, I, I think it's hard to say um, for us uh, kind of being on the, the outside looking in, um, quite frankly, I, I would love if, if one of the companies goes up for sale, I'd love to have a shot at them before Fanatics gets to them. But, you know, there's no indications right now that either one of them is for sale. Okay. And then the next question is, will Fanatics buy Upper Deck? That's not going to happen. Uh, Upper Deck's not for sale. Uh, we haven't been for sale. Uh, again, the rumors have been floating around for probably a decade that we're for sale. We're not for sale. We just aren't. Uh, we've not entertained any portion of Upper Deck being for sale uh, over the years, and that's not going to change. Again, you know, we're more in acquisition mode. We, we don't we don't have any plans to to sell Upper Deck. So I just want to ask why? Like that, like money talks in most cases. Uh, why isn't Upper Deck for sale? Well, this is a family legacy 
uh, thing now for um, our ownership. You know, when when Richard passed away, he had young kids, and this is a, a family legacy thing, and it, it's about it's about passing it on through the family, and then beyond that, there's a genuine care for the collectors in the hobby. And I think, again, you talk about worries about talent migration. This staff knows it. Like we care about the hobby. There's been times where we've made decisions that were definitely contrary to the bottom line um, to make sure that it was the right thing for the brand, whether it was the right thing for the shops or the collectors. And, and I think that the nice part about the ownership we have is we're allowed to make those decisions that are in the best interest of the hobby, not for a stock valuation, not for an IPO, um, not to you know try to to squeeze out some revenue at the end of a quarter. It's not about that, and it hasn't been since I've been working here. And I think that's a big difference for us as a company. So thank you for that. So Richard McWilliams uh, was the owner of Upper Deck. Right. He passed away. Now with now the shares of the company, I believe, are owned by the. Richard McWilliam Family Trust. Is that correct? Just the structure? Well, again, I, I'm not going to get into the detail of the ownership, but it's owned by the family. Yes. By the family. Okay. So there's a rumor that I've heard, and maybe you can put this one to bed too, that the company couldn't be sold until Richard's oldest child turned 18. <laughs> you want to? Again, that? it's just, it's another rumor. It's another speculation. It's, it's, look, the, none of that exists. It's not real. And there is no desire. And again, there has not been a single conversation since Richard passed away of this company being sold whatsoever. And again, everything you've heard is is false. It's a lie. It's rumor. Okay, good, good to know. Last quote, last, last sort of rumor-ish to, to ask you about is uh, the Michael Jordan, LeBron James autograph deals. There was a lot of talk and there still is, I guess, with this whole, with all the fanatics news that, you know, it would make sense for them to acquire Upper Deck. Then they acquire the Jordan auto lice, uh, auto deal, the LeBron auto deal. And all of a sudden basketball collectors can have Michael Jordan licensed autographed on trading cards again, which is something that, that you know, I think they, they highly desire. Um, I'm going to ask you, even I know you're not going to answer, but, you know, are those are is that contract with Michael Jordan? Is it transferable? I, I've I've heard that as soon as there's a change of control at Upper Deck, if that happens, that that Michael Jordan's contract is null and void, and 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 that's the end of it. And he'd probably be happy not to sign anymore. Is there any insights you can provide on that? Yeah, I mean, again, I can't get into kind of contractual details. What what I will say is that from the again, I don't I don't and I don't know Panini's contract. I don't know Fanatics' contract, but Look, if if there's going to be licensed LeBron and and Michael autographs again, they're going to have to be through UD. Um, so you know, look, I think one of the opportunities, if I want to create some rumor and speculation, is if you look at what Fanatics does and some of their other um, licenses, they control a lot of licenses and they actually license uh, some of those categories out. You know, there could be a scenario at some point, and I think it's doubtful. Um, because they are creating their own company, there could be a scenario where you know they work with Upper Deck or they license out to Upper Deck a portion of that their license, and then you could see that. Do I think that's likely? No, I don't. But could it happen? Yeah, I mean, maybe you could see some Upper Deck and Fleer brands back in basketball. Well, I think you just got a lot of people very giddy over those comments. <laughs> so <laughs> myself somewhat included. I'm going to ask you this now. So, you know, uh, Panini just announced they got the WWE license. Upper Deck recently announced the AEW license. 
are are you guys going after any more licenses right now? We're always looking at licenses and evaluating licenses, um, you know, as they come up. So I would say stay tuned. You know, we we are always kind of keeping our eye out, big and small. You know, one of the ones that has done pretty well for us that you know we ha haven't put out a core product yet is um, the PFL, the Professional Fight League. Um, we're having a lot of fun with those guys. They're, they're good licensing partners, uh, and it seemed like a good opportunity to do something a little bit different. You'll, you'll also see some, some more renewals coming in, and you'll see some new licenses added. Um, but it's hard to uh, expect that anything's going to be as exciting as the NHL, the NHLPA, or quite frankly, AEW. I mean, AEW is absolutely on fire from just a, an excitement standpoint. Uh, that league is 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 fun to watch. I mean, it's you know I hadn't watched wrestling in a while before AEW came along. I mean, it's a whole nother animal, and it, it's pretty exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, that's cool. Congratulations on that one. So, okay, I'm gonna now we're gonna go through some comments. I haven't taken a, a question from the chat in about 25 minutes, Jason. So we're gonna go through some sort of a bounce around type of topics here, and I'm okay. sure as we get to the bottom of the comments, we'll have some more comments or questions about uh, the the license deal. So. I'm going to start up here with Greg's question. Now, I don't think you're going to answer this, but just confirm you can't. Uh, he basically wants to know uh, the print run of Clear Cut Young Guns. Oh, honestly, I have no idea. Okay. Chris Carter says, what are your plans for AEW cards? If it, is it a hit-based product, large or small release? He's very excited about it. Can you let <laughs> us know any of the plans for AEW cards? Well, the, the first product out is a base brand UD. You know, we thought it was important to, to kind of introduce AEW with what people are familiar with from a base UD product. Now, the hard part is it's not going to feel like hockey or any of the sport, other sports we've done over the year because the checklist is relatively smaller. Um, but it will be based on kind of a, a base level uh, product that that's affordable for everybody. Now, you know, by the time it gets to the market and through pre-orders, I don't know how affordable it'll be because honestly, the the demand way outstripped what we thought it was going to be. Um, but we are looking at hit-based products. We are looking at uh, technology-based products going forward as kind of the second and third brands. Uh, what I can guarantee you is is there won't be a ton of products for AEW. You know, one of the mistakes that we've made, uh, we think that others have made with some of these uh, different sports licenses, there's just way too many sets and it gets oversaturated. So we're very conscious of that. We want to protect the, the AEW brand and the value drivers behind AEW. So you'll only you know, see a handful of sets per year on AEW. Okay. Well, good stuff, Chris. Hope that satisfied uh, what you were looking to hear. Dexflow, thank you very much for the tip. Says, uh, Jason, Overwatch is my favorite video game. Can you explain how you went about deciding to make Overwatch cards? So we've got a longstanding relationship with Blizzard uh, that goes back 20 years. We, we made World of Warcraft cards back when that was the hottest video game on the planet. We saw what they were doing with esports. We kind of ventured into that. Uh, unfortunately, the pandemic completely blew up our cadence and our production as you know, their players were trapped all over the globe and playing remotely. We couldn't get access to autographs and jerseys from them, and it's completely screwed up our, our product plans with them. Um, but that's you know, it, it really is largely based around the relationship we have with Blizzard. Okay, well, and there you go. Uh, Dexflow, thank you again for the uh, contribution. Appreciate that. Um, okay, 
Uh, Pastime makes the comment that Upper Deck has supported the local card shop more than every other card company combined. And this is Ken, who has, I believe, four shops in uh, in Western Canada. So uh, he knows what he's talking about for sure. Uh, D wants to know, will you eventually put the cup on EPAC? Well, I'm never going to say never, but there are zero plans to put the cup on EPAC. Okay, that's good. I, and I appreciate your very cautious answer. There's zero plans, but you never say never. That makes good right. sense to me. Uh, Daniel Busby says, uh, can I ask why it's so hard for LCSs to get cards? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'd have to get more detail on that comment because to my knowledge, you know, hockey has not seen the same shortages for uh, LCSs getting product that the other sports have. Uh, you know, we try to really balance the production and get enough product out to the shops. And quite frankly, uh, we're the only we're the only company that isn't selling some of that high end uh, product directly to consumers through our website. Right. So everything we produce, you know, other than our EPAC allocation is going to hobby shops and our key products are only going to hobby shops. And, and again, I think demand has definitely gone up during the pandemic, but I'm not seeing the same shortages with our products and our sport that I'm seeing with the others. Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing, I, I'm seeing or, or not seeing the same thing. So uh, AJ15 says, is the use of the same photo for multiple products a COVID issue and will it improve? It's frustrating collecting a rookie card that uses the same exact photo for many different products. So, you know, I think, again, this is one of those things where the product team spends a lot of time on it. What we did run into some issues with lack of access for photography because of COVID. Um, we also ran into some massive issues for bubble players. So it, you may be speaking of one of the rookies specifically who was brought into the bubble, placed on a roster, but may have never played. Uh, so there may be only one or two photos of that player completely. And then they never, they never actually skated. Right. So there were, you know, because of the pandemic, it created some exceptions to some things where guys made the roster, but they didn't skate or they skated one time. And then we had to make a bunch of rookie cards and yeah, we, we got stuck, unfortunately, repeating a photo. That's not typical for upper deck, uh, but it definitely has happened during the pandemic for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's a, Good question from uh, Skeppy says, uh, what is one way that you think the NHL could continue to gain more interest in the game? And I think it's a good question because, you know, and you'd know this better than most, Jason, um, hockey has always, you know, I've always felt there's four major sports and hockey has always sort of been the fourth biggest in the, in the U S anyway, obviously it's number one in Canada, uh, but in the U S you've got basketball, baseball, football, now you've got soccer. Soccer seems to have kind of taken that fourth position in the hobby away from hockey and pushed hockey down to number five. So maybe uh, speak to you. Are you noticing, is, is your perception the same as mine is on, on that soccer issue? And then the question that Skeppy asked, like what, what should the NHL be doing? And, and are you working with them to market the game better than they have been? Well, look, I think, you know, I think part of it's perception, right? And, you know, I grew up in Michigan, you know, I had a, I had a card shop. Hockey was my number two sport there. And, you know, growing up during the hockey town era, like everybody collected hockey. So I think part of it is where you grow up, where you're at. Um, 
and you know what part of the world or the part of the country that you're in. Again, I, I talk about it here in the U.S. Yeah, we have four major sports in Canada. There's really only one, if you're honest about it. There's only one sport in Canada, and that's hockey. So you know, I, I think it really depends on where you're at. What can they do to gain more interest in the game? I mean they've made a lot of improvements. They've expanded their television distribution deals. They're pushing internationally. You know, I think they're on the right path on a lot of it. You know, I think what a lot of leagues could continue to do is, you know, focus on the personalities of the athletes um, and some of the backstories. And I think hockey spent a lot of time doing that over the last several years, but, you know, getting to know some of these guys a little bit more. Um, you know, I think the hard part is, is that unlike the other sports, um, and I would say it's a, it's a positive thing is that the hockey players are typically so humble and so nice and they, they aren't as flamboyant and grab all the media headlines for better, or for worse than the other sports. And I don't see that changing. It's just not in the hockey DNA. Um, so it's really just about marketing the sport itself and the excitement of the game. And I'll tell you, you know, from spending time at the China games, to see new consumers taking in the game live is just a different animal. And I think if they can continue to do things like the outdoor games and bring them to new markets and show people the speed of the game live, it's just a different, it's a different way of, of pushing that envelope. Because we all know being at a game and being live is way different than seeing it on TV. And it's way more exciting. Definitely. How much of a hurdle do you think it is for the NHL the fact that the players wear helmets and it's more difficult to see their faces when you compare it to uh, basketball, obviously, and even baseball a little bit. In football, they're wearing helmets too. So it's kind of a, uh, it's its own thing, but speak to that if you can. Yeah. I mean, I don't see it as a big deal. I mean, most of the, the face, uh, the face guards are clear, right? So you can, you can actually see them whereas like in football, you know, sometimes you've got the, the dark visors, things of that nature, you have the face mask in the way. Um, you know, honestly, I, I think it's, it's really getting to know these athletes on a, on one way basis. And, you know, I think social media helps. I think the advent of social media helps people get to know these guys who spend a little time on, on social media, uh, I think, you know, some of the marketing that's being done with some of these athletes helps, uh, but every little bit, you know, we can add. And and I think that's a, a large piece of what Upper Deck can do. I mean, we continue to to brand Connor um, to expose the world to to Gretzky and Patrick Waugh and then the young guys like uh, Alexi and, you know, uh, Quentin Byfield and Shane Wright, you know, being able for us to go out and market their brand and market these athletes and allow people to get a little closer to them as part of our responsibility as licensees as well. Yeah. Okay. couple comments here. Um, Purple Haze says Upper Deck Forever. Uh, Ian says the family legacy over a quick payout is beautiful. Purple Haze also says, I hope Upper Deck is the resistance and never sells so to Fanatics. But then JG makes the comment and says, if Fanatics wants Upper Deck, Fanatics will get Upper Deck. I mean, how do you how do you respond to that comment? Or is that just like, yeah, it's just the peanut gallery? Well, I mean, it's the same thing that people said about Panini acquiring Upper Deck for years, too. So, I, I, look, I can't. Everybody's entitled to their, their thought process and what they think is going to happen. So, I, I, you know, he's more than happy to to think that way. But, you know, uh, again, we've been dealing with these rumors basically since the day I took over. I hear you. Okay. Let's talk about uh, Chris Carter's question here. Basically speaking to, you know, the, the, uh, the old age uh, kind of 
tradition of set building and kids in the hobby. So with the market being very hit based and also the importance of value and flipping, which is a big deal now in the hobby. Uh, not that it wasn't before people have always flipped cards, but what is upper decks? Uh, what sort of importance does upper deck put on set collecting and how can that be improved with children and new collectors? Well, look, uh, set collecting is everything to us. And, you know, we try to make products for all spectrum of the market, uh, including the, the hit driven products. But at the end of the day, the collectors are what drives it. Set building, player collecting, that's what drives the, the industry. You know, speculating and flipping has been here for quite a while. But the reality is, is most speculators and flippers are here for the arbitrage opportunity, the opportunity to profit. When the market turns, and it always does, those are the first people out. And what you're left with are the true collectors. So I think one of the things that really is different about the way we've approached the market basically since I've been here is that we are very focused on the pure collector. So if you look at our, our biggest and best product is UD1, UD2, and now extended, and it's a set-based product. We continue to make Opeachy, MVP, and, and some of, even some of the technology-driven products are very set-based as well. And honestly, that was part of the thinking behind EPAC and some of the achievement systems that we put on EPAC was we wanted to teach people to focus on completing sets. So if you look, the gamification, the achievements on EPAC are largely driven around completing sets and, and, and set completion. So there, we are very focused on it. I would say we are the most focused on it because that is the core of the hobby, whether anybody really wants to admit it. It doesn't get the headlines. It's not sexy like a million dollar card. Um, but it is the heartbeat of the pro of the the whole industry. Okay, good stuff. Thanks, Mike, who owns Eastridge Sports here in Calgary, says that uh, Jason, what do you think of Fanatic's statement that they want to be the place to distribute, sell, grade, and store cards? Do you think that is a conflict of interest? I think it's a massive conflict of interest. Do you think it'll happen? I think they have a plan. They've been vocal about it, and they'll execute it. You know, Jay but but it but it's definitely a huge conflict of interest. Jay Hook says, uh, what's Jason's opinion of breaking breaker uh, breaking slash breakers in the hobby, good, bad, or negative? Well, like some of the other questions, there's a lot of, to unpack there. I think the good breakers are great for the hobby. You know, they make especially expensive product very accessible to everybody. They get singles into the hands of, of player collectors very easily. They allow, they allow communities to be built uh, in those chat rooms and in those groups. Um, but there's a reason that for us, we concentrate on brick and mortar stores and we certify brick and mortar stores and concentrate on the breakers who own brick and mortar stores because they're not the scammers. You know, the problem with breaking is, is that you have to be careful who you're breaking with. And, you know, our feeling has been really supporting the brick and mortar stores because they have an investment, right? They can't afford to scam somebody because at the end of the day, they have to pay their rent. They have to pay their utilities. They need people to come in on a regular basis. So their reputation is everything. And that's where we've really been focused. So I think the reputable breakers are great for the hobby. The scammers are a scourge and honestly could be a, a huge detriment to the growth of this hobby if, if you know, too many people get harmed. Makes sense to me for sure. Um, I'm just trying to see who some, one of the comments here I want to bring up. I, I couldn't get there quick enough to see whose name this is, but someone on Facebook says getting back to LCS issues has upper deck spent time monitoring 
how Canadian distributors move product. We've seen allocations cut on or near release, followed by huge increases within five to seven days. Well, look, I, I can't speak to individual orders. What I what I can speak to is, you know, especially during the pandemic, you know, our production on a lot of these products were set well before the pandemic and orders increased dramatically. So there's a lot of factors there that I just don't know, you know, when were those pre-orders made? Um, you know, when were they cut? You know, I, what I've seen is a lot of complaints for people trying to reorder or increase their initial order. Um, but, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen anything that I would deem any abuse by our distributors. And quite frankly, you know, again, one of the points of differentiation between Upper Deck and some of our competitors is we only have five hobby distributors here in North America. Those guys, again, you know, they have every incentive to treat their shops fair and proper because, you know, it is, it is hard to become a distributor. And if you abuse that, you won't be a distributor. So I, I just, I don't see the things that are happening here um, with that happen with other sports. Is there a shortage of product on some of these products? 100%. Has demand skyrocketed? 100%. What's happening on an individual store basis? I, I, I don't know, honestly. You know, you can't, you can't make everybody happy as I'm sure you're well aware. So some people say, you know, well, we want our LCS to get more product, but as soon as you do that, they say, well, now you're, you're, you're flooding the market. So you're in a, you're in a very difficult situation to appease both sides there. Uh, Chris Carter, thanks for reminding me. I've always wondered, Jason, why does it still say congratulations on the back of a card when you know you're guaranteed an autograph or a jersey and something? Can, can we look at taking that off? Well, look, I mean, you're not really ever guaranteed anything, right? Like this is one of the things as a collector that, you know, I still have in my head and I know it, it, the mentality has definitely changed over the years is when I open a box and I don't care if it's of Upper Deck product or any of our competitors product, I don't ever feel like I'm guaranteed anything, quite honestly, because I've had so many boxes over the years going all the way back to the, the early 90s when inserts really took hold that I got skunked on. So I, I, I go into every box assuming I'm not guaranteed anything. And I know that's kind of a pessimistic way of, of viewing it, but I, I do still feel it's special to get, you know, an autograph or, or a game used jersey card as, as prevalent as they are. Okay, so so we're still going to have congratulations on the back. It, it's not going away anytime soon. No. Is there a legal reason that it's on there or anything? Or is it just, yeah. is it marketing? Is it just tradition? Uh, I mean, honestly, it, to me, it's more tradition than anything. I, I think for us... Brand consistency, as you can imagine, is pretty hallmark with us. That's why there's still anti-counterfeit holograms. There's still foil packaging. Um, you know, a lot of the brand tenants are the same. That congratulations has been there since very early on, and we just continued those traditions. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Troy, thank you very much for the contribution, the tip. I appreciate it. it says, uh, great live stream. Thanks, Jason, for taking the time to answer our, que to answer our questions. Hashtag love upper deck. Thank you. Uh, Troy peep says EPAC is genius. What I like about EPAC is that it does allow you to, uh, it allows people who don't have an LCS nearby to access the cars. I mean, that's, that is a good thing for the hobby. I, I believe. Well, and, and honestly, the, the, the thought process behind that is when I lived in Bloomington, Indiana, I mean, my closest hobby shop was like an hour and a half away. And even for me, like, um, um, the mass retail product wasn't getting it done for me at the time. Like it just wasn't, it didn't scratch the itch of, of a true hobby product. 
So part of that genesis was like, how do I get hobby product to consumers when they want it? And again, like when I want to open a product, I want to open it now. I think breakers have helped tremendously with that. I think EPAC is a second alternative to that. But, you know, I think that is the, the million dollar question is how do we get product to people wherever they want to consume anytime they want to consume? Yeah. Yeah. No, makes sense to me for sure. Uh, okay. Uh, Steve Sir says, shout out to the OG breakers, Klutz and Chera, and my LCS Grand Slam Sports. You know, it's funny. Breaking has become such a big part of the hobby now, bigger than we ever thought it would. But if you think back to the original breakers, like I remember, I'm sure you're aware of Klutz and Chera. I remember when they were just starting out. I mean, they were kids at the time. And, you know, and, and now I don't really keep up with them. I don't know if they're still doing lots of breaking or not, but the fact the term OG, like to me, that's OG. Like, <laughs> we're one of the right. original group breakers. Same with uh Firehand Sports. I can't think of his uh, out of the U, I can't think of his real name right now. Was a was a prof or a, a, a prospect for baseball, became a uh, became a, a breaker. And uh, oh, his name is, is escaping right now. Do you know who Firehand is? No, not off the top no. of my head. Yeah, anyway, these were the original uh, original breakers, and um, yeah, anyway, it's just uh. Thanks for thanks for the memory there, Steve Sir. Uh, Chris Carter says, "What do you think about the current junk slab era? Has it been good, bad, and what should be a reasonable industry price point for collectors to grade a card at? Is grading overhyped?" Now, before you just answer all that, Jason, because there's a lot to unpack on this one too. Right. But I want you to know, I'd ask you to take the approach to this with like, is it your business? You know, is it how how intertwined is producing cards with what happens to them on the secondary market in terms of grading? Well, look, I, I think, you know, grading is a, is a double-edged sword. You know, I think on the positive side, grading gives everybody a comfort level and some sort of standard of what that card is without seeing it. You know, I think one of the issues before grading was, you know, is that an excellent, is that a, a near mint mint? Like, what is that? And especially with the advent of eBay, you know, does that picture really represent the card that I'm getting? And, you know, we've all seen, again, scammers who use kind of a, a weird angle to hide defects in the cards, things of that nature. And, and I do think grading gives us a third party way to be objective and try to transact cards kind of uh, at a distance, right? It gives some semblance of, hey, if that's that's rated a nine, I have a general idea of what that nine means, right? Yeah. So I do think grading is, is important in that case. Um, you know, what I think we've seen is that the, the grading has gotten out of hand in the fact that people are grading everything. Uh, commons, they're grading commons, right? Like that's not what grading was meant for. And unfortunately, what, what some of this overhype and, and uh, overdramatics with all this stuff has put the grading companies in a bad position. You know, they're understaffed, they can't get through the important cards and the people who have cards that truly need to be graded, that need to be transacted, sent to auction, things of that nature, they can't get them graded now because it has completely got out of hand. And look, I, I think um, it, the junk slab era is probably my favorite term that I've heard over the last 10 years. Um, because I think it is representative. I mean, when you're seeing top space rookie cards getting graded on a regular basis, 
Um, like it just doesn't make sense. Right. And it's a little bit out of control. It's kind of funny though, because they sort of did it to themselves with just with they being a PSA because of the set registry, the set registry incentivizes you to have common cards graded in many, in many sets. Right. So, yeah. you know, it, it, I, and I, Nat Turner, uh, you know, he said it on this show, he wants to get back to having a, like a bulk level, uh, uh, you know, that 10 to $15 price point for, for grading those cards. He just needs to build up the capacity, which I think, you know, they're working very hard to do. So, I mean, it might, we may be in that temporary sort of a uh, phase of, of the life cycle of grading where eventually they can get back to that and not have backlog and have to close down services just so they can get through and service their customers have already card sent cards in. So interesting uh, topic to discuss with you. Thanks for your insights on that. I want to bring up uh, Pedro's comment here and thank you to Pedro for the tip. The contribution says consider making Warhammer 40k cards company is the company's games workshop, very large international fan base, yours truly included. TCG or Marvel type of set. Is this something that's on the, uh, is Warhammer on the radar? You know, we've talked to Games Workshop over the, over the years, the Games Workshop is the, the, the parent company of uh, Warhammer 40K. We've never been able to kind of find a product that works or, or a deal that works, but they're, they're a great company and they have a huge fan base for sure. Yeah. Back to breaking. Ed Seat reminds me, it's Chad Redfern. That's who is a uh, Firehand Sports. That's right. Facebook users tells me the same thing, uh, which brings me to uh, Irving Manera, who was working with with Chad for a while. So Irving is one of the original breakers as well, like an OG OG group breaker. And I believe Irving just opened up his own card shop. So congratulations to you, Irving. I hope uh, you're carrying some upper deck products in your shop while well, we have uh, Jason on with us tonight. Um Okay, Jason, I want to just, uh, this question here, basically the, the gist of this is, are there still going to be retired veterans in, in products? So this goes back to one of your first questions, uh, I think when we started talking about running things into the ground. And I think one of the conversations that we've had internally is retired players were in every set and it just didn't make it special anymore. And I think what we've done is we've tried to concentrate the retired players in products that really make sense. Um, because honestly, you know, seeing the same retired players year after year in the same inserts and the same parallels is a problem. Uh, it is a problem and it also waters it down. And if, you know, I think one of the, the pet peeves, if we're all honest about it is if I'm a Steve Eiserman collector, you know, he's got way more cards from the time he retired than while he played. And that's not fun. I mean, if we're really honest about it, it's not fun. So I think limiting the number of sets that retired players appear in is, is a good thing for everybody. Yeah, no, it makes sense. JG, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Irving wanted to say hello to you as well. Peeps says, please bring back Fleer Ultra. Had to say it. Any plans to bring back Fleer Ultra? Uh, Again, I'm not going to say it's off the table. There have been discussions. I think, you know, for us, you know, we're in a new time and place. There was a time where we'd have our meetings with our shops and our distributors. And we, and we typically do that a couple times a year. We actually meet with the shops and the distributors and the breakers and say, hey, you know, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? There was a time, and the guys will verify this, where they said, don't put out anything related to FLIR. It will it will inevitably fail every time you do it. So just stop. Um, so we did stop for a period of time. And uh, what we're seeing is that, that 
I don't want to say vintage, that retro feel coming back and people really longing for some of those inserts. So, you know, I think um, Metal Universe was kind of our first four way in. Um, and, you know, I think you'll continue to see some of those, uh, I would say, retired brands come back, not just Fleer, but some of the old Upper Deck stuff. And you got a preview of that and extended. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. And I mean, I've been lobbying for this for a long time. I mean, you know, talking to uh, brand managers at Upper Deck and I, you know, I've said, listen, you guys are missing the boat if you're not bringing back Fleer. I, I don't. I mean, I don't care what the distributors are telling you. The hobby wants Fleer right now, and, uh, well, and, and look, I think, I think Jeremy, that- I, there's this there's this weird rom- romance about um, Hot Prospects. Um, hot Prospects was a fantastic closeout, but when it was selling around the price that it was intended to be, nobody wanted it. Um, so if you go back at some of the Fleer products that we produced during my tenure, like when the stuff was price the way the hobby shops need to price it to make money, they couldn't sell it. It was only when they closed it out that people loved it. So really the history of the Fleer brand uh, in hockey since Upper Deck took it over wasn't good. I I do think the times have changed. So I think we're reevaluating everything now. But, you know, again, people have there are certain brands that we put out over the years that people kind of have romanticized and really like once it became a closeout. And again, we're living in an area where nothing's closed out anymore. Um, so it's, it's, it's different. Um, but there was a period of time where, you know, some of people's favorite brands were favorite brands because they got them at a, at a heavily reduced price and the card shops lost a lot of money on them. Yeah. I, I guess it just comes for me. It just comes down. And I mean, I say this, uh, you know, with ignorance, cause I don't know the ins and outs, but, um, it comes down to just sort of doing it right. You know, hot prospects didn't work. So Let's uh, let's back to the drawing board. But even putting the Fleer name on things, I think at this right now in like 2021, the timing is ripe. So, um, well, and 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 again, Jeremy, it's a good conversation, right? Because again, you know, uh, everybody has short memories. Fleer Retro and Fleer Showcase, um, you know, early in the in the teens, there was not received well at all, right? Like I know everybody's chasing those cards now, but when those products came out, nobody wanted them. So again, like people's memory is kind of short, but that's kind of what we're up against. So, you know, yeah. again, things have changed. I, I, they, they have changed. I, I hear what you're saying on that. And <laughs> I would just rebut it by saying that, but now people want it right now. You can't get Fleer retro. I mean, you might've been able to a year and a half ago, buy a box of Fleer retro. If you could find it for 150 bucks. Now it's like probably $1,200 right. if you could find one on the secondary market. So like you said, though, times have changed. And, and um, you know, I think you guys showed, great uh you know foresight or or just progress by bringing on uh gene mcleod from arena designs and announcing that at the national back in august i mean uh, that was very exciting news for you know i felt i it's funny i felt fortunate twice now to be a you know i collect all all the sports jason but hockey's my number one and i felt fortunate about that for two things recently number one well, and your announcements, number one, Gene McLeod coming on and designing FLIR products or up, sorry, Upper Deck products, hopefully under the FLIR banner um, and Skybox banner, uh, but also the license renewal. I mean, you know, I like Upper Deck cards, so I want to see that, that stick around. So speaking about Gene McLeod, and if anybody out there doesn't know, Gene McLeod is, the, is a lady who worked for a company called Arena Designs. And in the 90s, she was hired by FLIR and Skybox to design the iconic the iconic sets and inserts that we all chase today, like precious metal gems was hers. Jambalaya was hers. Platinum portraits was hers, etc. Essential credentials was hers. 
all these things that we all want to chase now. Jason, tell us a little bit about the decision to kind of uh, bring Jean back on now, 25 years since she's designed a card. And, uh, and, and why was that important for Upper Deck? Well, you know, again, we talk about the internal competition and the, the ability to evolve uh, among ourselves here at Upper Deck. And look, we've put out some FLIR products. We put out, you know, we put out a ton of them in Marvel um, because the Skybox and, and FLIR brands are so iconic in the, in the Marvel space. Um, we've done, we've kind of rehashed some of the old designs. We've, we've done our own. But, you know, our feeling was if we were going to take it to the next level, like, why not go back and get the authors of the iconic designs of all time, the original designs? And look, we were fortunate that they were available. Um, Jean and her husband do a wonderful job. We, we brought them into the fold. You know, they're working for us on an exclusive basis. And we're really looking forward to seeing the designs. And I'll be honest, I mean, the, the Metal Universe Champion designs are some of the best designs I've seen in my time here at Upper Deck. They're absolutely stunning. I think people are going to be blown away when they collect that set. Um, and we're looking forward to see what they can do, not only with FLIR, but maybe some, some Upper Deck brands as well. We have some brands that could use a, a facelift or some energy, and they're going to bring it to us. So we're, we're pumped. Awesome. That's great. Card art wants to know if you could uh him and his son are collecting I, I assume him and his son are collecting precious metal gems or precious metal hockey or just metal hockey but uh th my son asks to go to the lcs as he's building the set what's one unique aspect or fun anecdote about the set that he would find interesting is there anything you can think of sharing that uh card art could share with the son well you know I, I don't know that i have any good detail on the details of the set itself um, you know, that's really the, the product team that, that gets into it. Uh, the, the antidote probably for this group that you guys will find funny is originally metal universe started out as base FLIR and then it evolved to skybox premium and ended up as metal universe when everything was said and done. Um, so it actually didn't start here as metal universe, but it, again, it was, um, a group of us kind of debating about how to bring FLIR back to the upper deck portfolio for hockey. And it, it took a, it took a little bit of a jagged journey. Okay. Well, I'm glad it landed where it did. So that that's good. That's good stuff. Uh, Rage, glad to have you. Welcome to the show <laughs> and UD rep. This is the president of upper deck rage, Jason <laughs> Moshera. Um, okay. Uh, Al, thank you for the update. Flames up one, nothing. Maybe we can win six in a row. That would be pretty amazing actually. Uh, Daniel Busby, is there a chance to ever release all-time greats again? Uh, you know, possibly at, at some point, but it's not on the calendar for any time soon. Okay, thank you. Um, and then uh, Billy, Billy Celio, you might know him, says, Jason, how did you like that <laughs> Michigan State football game today? Oh, I loved it. I, I, I've got no complaints. I mean, typically as a Michigan State alum, you're used to Michigan State beating Michigan when they're four and three or two and five. Like we're not used to them going into that that meeting where both teams are undefeated and and actually beating Michigan. So it's a nice change of pace for sure. Okay. <laughs> there, there you go, Billy. And just on the topic of Billy, uh, Chris Carter says, Jason, Billy needs to win employee of the year and get a raise. So Billy's got some friends out there. Uh, hello to Costa. Welcome to the show, buddy. Good to see you. Troy says, agree with bringing back FLIR. Some of my favorite Eisenman PC cards are FLIR. Very nice, very nice. There's some talk about CHL products in their future. AJ15 loves the CHL products. Costa says the AHL cards look like CHL cards this year. Love it. 
Uh, is there anything you want to share about the uh, the CHL cards this year? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the CHL is, for the most part, they were shut down last year, and a lot of those prospects went to the AHL. So if you're wondering why the, the AHL kind of looks like a CHL set, it's because a lot of the prospects couldn't skate in the CHL, and they went to the AHL. Um, so the AHL set this year is loaded, and the CHL set we, we didn't have content for because the league was shut down, and most importantly, the OHL right, was shut down. So it was a problem for us. Okay, thanks for that. I'm going to bring up this Chris Carter again. These these sort of detailed product questions, I don't know if they're your wheelhouse, but we'll put them out there. Have you considered expanding beyond exclusives out of 100, high gloss out of 10, and doing out of 5 and a 1 of 1 for basically he's talking about young guns in Series 1, Series 2? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, for us with UD, and again, yeah, I'm not the right guy for the product details, but from a philosophical standpoint, um, you know, the the young guns in particular, plus the base set have enough parallels. Like we, we've really, you know, expanded it probably more than we're even comfortable with, which I, I'm sure seems odd compared to some of the brands and the different sports and the number of parallels. You know, we, we want to make sure, especially with the young guns, that we're not creating too many versions of the young guns. And it's a dilemma that we have every year. Uh, and I know that Billy and the team all debate it on a regular basis of adding something fresh and new, but there's a reason why the exclusives and the high gloss, you know, have the value that they have. And, you know, I think it's always the, the team always wants to side on the error of protecting those values versus kind of watering it down, but it, it's hard. I mean, we debate that probably every single year. Yeah. Okay. Now I I, I'm happy with where it is myself. I agree with you. Uh, the, there is a balance there. You you need a certain amount for chase and for exclusivity, but uh, once you get to too many, it just becomes re redundant and uh, watered down in my in my personal opinion. Uh, Matt wants to know: Have you looked at any overseas sports such as cricket or Australian rules football? You know, we have. Um, I've got. I've been blessed to spend some time in Australia and, and go to some AFL games. I mean, we we look at all of that stuff. Um, you know, I think um, like the the other manufacturers, the the online platforms give us an ability to, you know, maybe look at some licenses we couldn't before because you know in Australia in particular, there's hardly any card shops. The price of rent is too expensive for LCSs for the most part in Australia. There's a couple but not like there was back in the eighties and nineties. Uh, the same in Europe, um, you know, there's not a lot of card shops. A lot of cards are sold through kiosks and things of that nature. Uh, South America, there's nothing there as well. So, you know, we're always looking, we're always evaluating, we're always gonna have some fun licenses to kind of throw at you guys and you'll see some stuff crop up along the way. That's cool. Okay, great. Card Art says, are there Gretzky game used Oilers in the archives? like swatches and that, I guess. And will we ever see a Wayne Gretzky Oilers patch auto again in a new Upper Deck product? I mean, just thinking about it off the top of my head, I don't know if there is or not. Um, again, <laughs> I'm not I'm not that close to know whether there's anything kind of in the, the inventory database. I know Oilers legitimate, like game-used, authentic game-used Gretzky jerseys are super rare. So... Uh, I don't think we've we've bought one in, in quite some time. Um, whether we have any inventory, I have no idea. Thank you for the uh, open answer. And Costa, we did talk about this before, but just to confirm again, uh, Upper Deck will be inserting uh, the the canceled ice cards in future products. 
Uh, again, the the team hasn't decided exactly what they're going to do, and they haven't announced anything. But our our big concern is making sure there's continuity. So you will see there will be some delivery mechanism that will be announced in the future that will allow there to be continuity and not a missing year. And that's what I meant. We we're going to have continuity. I, li I like how you put it, a delivery mechanism. So <laughs> yes, Costa, there is a delivery mechanism that will be uh, that will that will come to come to fruition here. So great stuff. Okay. We're at the bottom of the comments. That's great. We're over two hours, Jason. It's flown by for me. I hope you've, you've enjoyed this, uh, despite maybe a couple of challenging questions along the way. Before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask NFTs. I, I, you know, I always say this is a sports card channel. Uh, I'm a sports card collector, but NFTs are something that are on the people's minds. And uh, even with that, with the with Mark Zuckerberg's presentation the day before yesterday with the metaverse and all the everything going on there, it seems to almost be taking on, taking on even more life now where, wh how, let me ask you this, how far along in the, within, how far along in the development of the NFT strategy are you guys? Well, we're very far along. And quite frankly, um, the, the NFT conversation has definitely changed over the last nine months or so. So when NFTs first hit, the whole purpose was they were supposed to be attached to a public blockchain. That's completely gone away. You know, pretty much every NFT you see now is on a private system, which is really scary because that means that either that system can go away or the license can, can go away at some point. So the way the NFTs are described now, we've actually been doing NFT since 2011. So I would actually say we're the innovator in the space. Uh, we've been doing digital trading cards and, and, and physical equivalents since 2011 with a program that we launched with Dynamics uh, based on credit card rewards back in 2011. You know, the only difference between what we do on EPAC and what everybody touts on NFTs is that they, A, publish the chain of history uh, of the card and B, they allow people to buy and sell them on the platform, which we don't do on EPAC. But as you know, on EPAC, every card has a unique identifier and a unique ownership, just like an NFT. So, you know, we kind of laugh to ourselves because we've been on the forefront of what is being, you know, marketed as NFTs out there um, since 2011. What I think the big difference from where we're going with NFTs versus what we're doing with EPAC now is that generally the NFT collector is digital only. You know, the, the big thing with EPAC is that we have physical equivalents um, and you, you hear people saying physical to digital, but they don't really know what that means. EPAC is physical to digital. It exists in both realms at the same time. Um, what we've seen is that there is a, a fan base and a collector base that wants to collect purely digital. And that's what we will be delivering in the evolution platform when that launches. And, and we've had this plan for a while now. Um, like everything else right now, it takes a little longer to launch it and launch it right. Um, for us, you know, we don't need to be first. We just need to be best. And that's where we're kind of concentrated on. Um, so we're, we're pretty deep in it at this point. Okay, good to know. Appreciate that, and looking forward to see how it. I like right now. I'm I'm just not informed enough on NFTs to really uh, contribute anything of substance. So, but I, I you know, I'll want to learn about it as as it uh, as things happen. Uh, Waxel says, Jason, the sharpest dressed guest <laughs> on SCL. Thanks for the interview. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, usually everyone's wearing hoodies on this show for some. I'm just kidding. Uh, Chris Carter says, I'm very impressed with Jason's responses. Thank you for your work and especially the team behind you who do such a great job at Upper Deck. 
goes on to ask me any after hours tonight just everybody watching uh who's used to after hours i don't have an after hours episode scheduled right now but i was thinking you know i am I've been spending a couple of hours the last few nights pricing cards for the Expo and the Vancouver show. So maybe I can come back live when uh, Jason and I wrap up here a few minutes later and uh, show you guys what I plan on selling at the Expo. Maybe that's something I can do if you're interested. Let me know if uh, that would have any interest from the audience. Um, Cardboard Casino, uh, this did come up uh, already. So uh, Jason, do you you want to just quickly summarize what your answer was or I can ask him to rewind? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go back into it again, quite honestly. No problem. Sorry, 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 cardboard casino. That's okay. We did cover a cardboard casino. (laughs) So feel free to, uh, to, to replay in, uh, yeah, two, two times the speed to save you some time. Skeppy (laughs) says amazing interview. Jason knows his stuff and what you'd expect from a hands-on CEO. Thank you for that comment. Skeppy. Joe Perot says a robust and in, a robust and informative show. Thanks, Jason. Your commitment to the culture of UD is commendable. And uh, ooh, after hours, ask me anything tonight. Yeah, we could we could do something like that. Card art, you are welcome. Says thanks to you too, Jason. Impressive responses and transparency. Upper deck, present, and future are strong. Okay, that's the end of the comments, guys. We are going to uh, Jason. We're going to wrap this up. Any before we do, any final comments? Uh, questions uh anything message you want to send to the uh, to the audience yeah i i mean i would just reiterate you know we're very focused on the collector the card shop uh, more than anything else you know again i think that's a lot of the messaging and the news that we've seen over the last nine months in the hobby unfortunately isn't speaking to that uh, that is our focus uh, we continue to be focused that and and this team that we have here is incredible i'm not responsible for anything this team is is the best team in the industry um, and, and you guys get a chance to see them uh, on this podcast on a regular basis. I mean, you guys know what we're dealing with. And, uh, you know, it's the reason our, our deals got got renewed is, is the incredible team here at Upper Deck. Yeah, congratulations. And I, it's uh, just for, for me and for Sports Cards Live, we've now had the president. We've had the vice president, Mike Phillips. We've had Grant Sandground. We've had uh, Tony Soriano. We've had Billy several times, good friend of mine. So, uh, oh, Chris Carlin's been on several times. Yeah. I Who's next, Jason? Who should I uh, invite on next? <laughs> Put you on the spot. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of interesting people that you could bring on here. Um, Paul Zickler heads up our sports division on the brand side. He'd be great. Um, Gabriel Garcia, who heads up our, our authenticated memorabilia and actually spent some time on the card side as well. So he knows both sides of the business. I think he'd be a fantastic guest. Um, there, I mean, there are just so many incredible people here that do such a great job that, I mean, you could, you, you could probably fill out the rest of the, uh, the shows for the end of the year. Good to know. Okay. Well, thank you uh, very much. Uh, Steve, sir, appreciate your comments. Daniel says we must have a closing show. Okay. We can definitely, uh, definitely <laughs> think about that. So guys, uh, before we end this, um, and this always happens, Jason, where we got the, the, this, the, the, uh, final comments coming through, but I'd like to address them because they're complimentary uh, for, for both uh, you and myself. Great show. Thanks, Jeremy and Jason. Upper Deck is the best. Nice comment, Troy. Thank you for that. Uh, Hits and Chicks says Upper Deck is king. Thank you, Hits and Chicks. Uh, <laughs> Criminal Minds loves to stir up uh, trouble. Always great to have you, Criminal Minds. Uh, Studio Sports says thanks, Jason. The loyal UD followers are grateful this session. Okay. 
So for anyone who wants, uh, I'll go live again here in about 10 minutes uh, on the channel and um, maybe just do like yeah, an open session. If you want to ask questions, happy to just have some conversation, show some cards that I will have at the expo uh, for sale. Uh, that's it. We're going to end this. Jason, uh, again, thank you to you for, for joining your transparency. Really appreciate it. And um, I guess that's it. We're done. <laughs> Hang tight right there. Everybody else, uh, you know, Tomorrow on Collectible Live, I got Buster share with me. So that's going to be a pretty fun episode. Uh, I can't wait to do that one. And um, if you want to if you want to see more of this face right here, I'll come back in a few minutes on the show. Bobby Burrell, thanks for joining. Good to have you. Thanks for the comment. Okay, that's it. This is over. Jason, hang tight. All right. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.